time for Type 40, your Doctor Who podcast from the Spacebook for the Fandom Podcast Network. With me, Dan Hadley, Birmingham's king of the geeks, your, your designated driver and mouth runner, materialising again here with Doctor Who conversation on our free-speaking, big-thinking show for everyone. That's whatever decade or century you started watching, reading or listening along to those ongoing adventures of our hero, Doctor Who. We chat about it all on this show. And who knows, there may even be a few laughs along the way. So come and step into our TARDIS and share this journey together here with us in Doctor Who's 60th anniversary year on Type 40. <laughs> Snaffling another 90 minutes of, of your time, your time and space, or space and time, whichever. I'm never really sure what order that's supposed to be, actually. But yeah, we're doing it whatever, it is, whatever it is, and we're hurtling back through the both, really, as the anniversary year takes flight and a new Doctor Who on the television, well, there's not much of that, is the sadly, but there's lots and lots to look back on here for our diamond review season of classic and new Doctor Who stories as we approach that all new era. Each and every single era, I think, has got little nuggets, as well as the things that we re-watch re over and over again, and that we see reviews and articles about over and over again. There are lots of little nuggets tucked away that maybe have passed you by for a couple of years in this sort of umbrella series here. And we have a classic series tale, getting the Type 40 treatment this time. I've got just the fellow travellers to sort of break it down with me to crack the codes on the walls of BBC Television Centre in the 1970s, as befits classic series Doctor Who and that a 1974 serial, Death to the Daleks in particular. So who's here? Who have I got? Well, first of all, is my regular co-host and my dear friend. I've got Simon Horton. <laughs> well, hello there. It's lovely to be back talking about classic who everybody knows that i am yeah. a classic fan above everything else and so it's brilliant to be uh, i can i can never ever get bored of talking classic who quite frankly you've mentioned it a couple of times and i like how in your your backdrop at the moment you look like you're lit by a crt back in 1974 75 <laughs> flickering light of a television screen there. <laughs> yeah absolutely and i've got my I've got my tardis and i've got my dalek up there the little the, yeah. the talking daleks it wasn't quite released in 1974 it's a few years later than that but never mind it's as close as you're going to get seeing as that there weren't any 1974 daleks out at that point so it's as close as you're going to get they had they had a, a period an off time didn't they an off period but it's, it a, it's a bit dark in here in the TARDIS itself this time isn't it do you think this is just it's topical with the cost of, li of living crisis and that's what's going on in the TARDIS there <laughs> well it was very topical at the time because of all of the power cuts that were going on uh, back then in 1974 that's of course why they did it and now of course yeah it's, it's topical again now because none of us can afford to turn on the lights or turn on the heating so this is know. why we get him on everybody because I didn't I hadn't joined the dots there Actually, of course, yeah. Well, I remember power cuts. I was very, very young yeah. in the seventies, and this this does predate me. But I do remember the power cuts and the three day weeks and the and the misery and all that sort of stuff. We've never been happier in Britain, have we, than when when we're suffering? <laughs> <laughs> well, we like we get chance to moan, don't we? And that's what Britons do best is moan. <laughs> you could be right, uh, but yeah, that, I think that's our component part of things sort of almost certain to to raise its head at some point ranting and raving but we do have a balancing act about to enter the fray we're being graced by one of the time lords themselves making his debut on type 40 and if you're a listener to uh, doctor who on audio and who isn't a big finish you may have already heard him as the newest actor to take to the mic 
as the, the first, the very first incarnation of the Doctor in a whole line of brand new audio adventures. Actor and a voice artist, but more importantly for us tonight, he's a lifelong Doctor Who fan. Stephen Noonan, welcome to the show. Hello there. I'm delighted to be here. And, and talking about my first Doctor, the third Doctor. I'm guessing that we are of a similar age. And so did yeah. you grow up with John Pertwee? Yeah, uh, fall yeah. in love with Tom Baker? Precisely, Simon, mm -hmm. precisely. I think, I, think, uh, I think we may be of quite a similar vintage. Mm -hmm. I've got a sense that I think I've heard you mention in some of the collaborations I've seen you both do that your first memory was the demons is that right yes that is correct I was three years old at the time and I remember Bob from the demons what is your earliest memory also John no. Pertwee, uh, well yeah yeah John Pertwee, but not the demons my yeah. very first memory is the sea devil burning through the door in episode yes. two of the sea devils and running into the kitchen and telling my mother that I was too frightened to stay in the room with the television. Michael Bryan, uh, who directed The Sea Devils, had a thing about hands. So the whole of the first episode oh. of The Sea Devils, all you see is the hand, the hand, grabbing the, that, hand right. grabbing the microphone, the beginning, the first, yeah. the first sight of it, and yeah. coming up over the, the lifeboat. He's, it, it's a sort of motif in this story as well, the hands the hand now you've, the, now you've the said first it. sight of the exelon you see in episode one of this the hand. the hand on the rock the hand creeping across the floor towards sarah um later on belal's belal's hand i had a recurring nightmare as a child that i was in our kitchen and my parents weren't in the house and one of the drawers the drawers you know that which called the cutlery but it was a place where there wasn't a drawer which was there was a blank one but that blank one in the dream started to open. There was a hand inside it. And I ran out and I, I was closing the doors and I knew it was gonna be able to, whatever it was, was gonna be able to burn through the doors. Wow. Potent things about Doctor Who in, in the Portuguese are hands and burning through doors, of course, because you've got the sea devil does it, the ogrons that also terrified me, frontier in space, yes, they do it. burning through the door, the Daleks burning through the door and planet of the Daleks. So these are, these are all sort of vivid, powerful memories. Well, Jerry Shock. Anderson used to do things like that in his shows quite a lot. And he used to do a lot of handwork as well, didn't he? So, yeah, <laughs> mainly so yeah, you, yeah. you didn't have to use the strings. But, but I think right. it's interesting because by the sounds of it, I'm suspecting your sort of engagement with Doctor Who in those early years is very similar, if not identical to mine, because the Tom Baker stories, I can remember very, very clearly the whole story in many cases. Whereas the John Pertwee is, I'm the same as you, I just remember moments, scenes. What was so powerful at that time was the dedication of Barry Letts and his directors, that when he's saying to anybody who's coming on board, you treat this like it's the play for today. So everybody's treating it with complete and utter seriousness and the actors are playing it 100% to the limits of their conviction. And so there's, so it's the hand thing is there, but there's Pertwee's extraordinary ability to communicate hysterical alarm on his face, you know. So his face would communicate the fear to the audience. And of course, Katie Manning's brilliant ability and Liz Sladen later on to communicate the sort of the fear that we were feeling. Yes. But also the, 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 the job that other people like Malcolm Clark's music 
in the Sea Devils, which I always say is like somebody boring into your brain with a drill while you're on a bad acid trip. You know? That's the you often describe it as boring into your brain, don't you? As getting deep, you know, the, the yes. soundtracks and the incidental musics and things like that. Exactly. It, that. it was repeated twice in the seventies, yeah. which makes it yeah. unique, I think. There was the Christmas repeat, mm. and I'll never forget the lad around the corner, David Williams, coming around saying, "Doctor Who's on." And th this would often, because we never knew what was going on, did we? You know, no, no, suddenly, because, no, no, no. you know, there was so little publicity. And so uh, having to put the TV. And then one May Day morning in yeah. 1974, being around at my cousin Ian's, playing out the sunshine. I mean, Auntie Sheila, who was a bit of a joker, came out into the garden and said, Hey, Doctor Who's on. And we both went, Oh, no, no it isn't. Not. She goes, No, it is. It's the Sea Devils. And I thought, how could she know the title? Yeah. And there was this sort of dawning <laughs> realization and this this and this this unbelievable excitement running in. I don't know what had been the, the cricket had been cancelled. It was the cricket, it was. Yeah. cricket had been raided off. And and there was this extraordinary repeat of the sea devils. We're all over the map already. already I know. Gents. I know. <laughs> You want to get this done in two hours? <laughs> <laughs> we're going to do. We're going to do our best. Now, you and I have spoken before, haven't we, Stephen? And back then, and I was, yeah. I was staggered yeah. by your memory regarding the classic show. But you've been playing the Doctor on audio for a little while now, haven't, haven't yeah. you? We're not going to be pressing you for spoilers and embargoes on all of that. I was going to say to you, obviously, there's say, no don't, script. Don't, don't mention the warp machines. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, there's no script uh, this time, but it's obviously not, not going to be a problem for Stephen Noonan, is it? No, no. <laughs> More on that in, in due course, but our focus this well, time yeah, no, is no, on, on the 70s, as luck would yeah, have yeah. it, with these two aboard and, and the third Doctor. So yeah, John Pertwee, he was cast as a third Doctor in the, the summer of 1969, uh, just as his predecessor's final story was reaching its slow, gradual end. Obviously, I think it was like week seven of the War Games, something like that. And the, uh, the newspapers of the day they feasted on the news of the series reinvention uh, and that the central character would be uh, re-manifest again in the form of this enigmatic actor. He was familiar from the stage, from cinema, but most notably radio. John Pertwee was an incredibly versatile voice talent and sort of a household name after playing that, the role of uh, the chief petty officer, wasn't he, on the, on the Navy Lark. He'd been doing that for well over 10 years at that point. And as I say, the idea that somebody could be a household name off the back of radio. I think that, that's quite an alien idea now. Even DJs, people sort of forget who they are. But Pertwee would, would remain on the, on the Navy Lock until long after he'd finished on Doctor Who. In, in taking up the, the TARDIS key, if you like, the 50-year-old actor found a great challenge in effectively stepping out from under the funny accents and the false moustaches to play the hero in a family fantasy adventure serial that had its own place, Simon, in not just the TV schedules, but as almost part of the average British family. By the end, towards the end of the Patrick Troughton years, it was dwindling. Viewing figures were, were dipping at that point, really at an all-time low, which is kind of odd when we think about it, because we all love Patrick Troughton, we love the Patrick Troughton years. And I don't think that's that they didn't resonate with the public. I think it's just that it had been on television at that point for, for sort of five, six years. Um, that was a long time for a series in those days. And so I think it was just it was just slightly dwindling popularity. And of course, what's odd then when, when John Pertwee comes up on board is that, as you say, Dan, he was known purely 
for comedy. I think I'm right in saying probably at, th at that point he wasn't known for any straight. I think this was his first straight one, role. Really, I could, yeah. So he I was could. only known for comedy. And so imagine how sort of blindsiding it was for the audience to tune into season seven and uh, expecting John Pertwee to be John Pertwee. And, uh, 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 and, and you get this very, very, apart from some of the spear, uh, uh, spear from space, which is a bit more comedic, but only slightly. But the rest of the season is really hard hitting straight down the line. And that must have been quite shocking for the for the audience of the day to expect one thing from Pertwee and get something entirely different. Yeah, it's safe to say that Doctor Who's fortunes had been better, Steve. And the show was only really making it through to colour and yeah. to the 1970s at all because the BBC simply couldn't think of anything else to replace it with, could they? And Pertwee himself, he had his own doubts, didn't he? But he, he remained quite pragmatic and quite professional about it. And I don't know if he knew that he'd been gifted something as such in the way that people would now, but he was open-minded to the challenge, it would seem, and maybe charmed a little too by, by the belief that Barry Letts had in him and mm. Derek Sherwin, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Well, is it, didn't um, Barry Letts start looking for another another show, didn't it, about an Australian sort of yeah. Crocodile Dundee sort of foreshadowing that sort of story, wasn't it? Was it mm -hmm. called Snow, Snowy Black or something, I think? He was, I mean, I mean, Barry Letts, yeah, was sort of, um, he, he was told by the BBC to find a replacement for Doctor Who. So yeah. Barry Letts and Terence Dick spent most of the time making season seven also readying another series for if uh, Doctor Who was shelved. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Remarkable yeah. when you think about it, but they were tasked with finding a replacement for Doctor so, Who while they were making Doctor Who. So while Pertwee's making Ambassadors of Death, Inferno, etc., he must have been aware that yeah. this, was, this was probably a short-lived gig yeah. at the time. And when you think um, about it, Stephen, that was pretty brave of him thus to take on the role because yeah, yeah, yeah. it wouldn't have done his career much good if Doctor Who had finished with him in the no. role after just no. one year. So it's no, a brave no, no. decision, really, of his to take yeah. it on, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and an extraordinary decision to, um, it would seem, I and mean, a number of people I know who are slightly older than me um, were very dubious about John Pertwee as a, as a choice of Doctor. Mm -hmm. Because they, because he was known almost exclusively, well, exclusively for comedy, yeah. And then the the great surprise, the astonishing surprise, that he's probably the straightest of them all, actually, isn't yeah. it? I mean, after, yeah. after, as you say, after after there's a little bit of of comedy in um, which which he deplored himself. He said he couldn't yes. look at those like that. The, he hated the scene in the Duc d'Orléans shower. shower as he. As he refers to it, and, and the um, and um, the trying on of clothes, he the hates trying on, yeah, he hates that as well, yeah. Mm. Um, but after and yet that, it, and yet it's quite, it's it's quite vaudeville, isn't it? It's, I think I'd file that yeah. file that under hijinks. Yeah, but well, you'd, but you'd it, really never see it again. No, no. I mean that they don't stand out as being particularly. They, they don't no. jar, do they? No. Scenes? The, 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 the only the only things that he he refines or gets rid of i think in the early films is, is the gurning you know the gurning faces yes. that he does when he's being strangled by yeah. the nesting the nesting octopus and there's a little bit in the side doctor in the silurians and yeah. i think because unlike tom baker who claimed he never used to watch it uh and left left it all to 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 intuition 
person who always watched himself. And he probably saw himself doing that and thinking, no, that doesn't work, and and mm-hmm. and, uh, and excise that from the performance. But I think, um, and I'm slightly biased because I suppose he is my doctor, certainly my first doctor. Um, I don't think he ever puts a foot wrong very soon after that. There's, there's, there's almost never never a moment when he's when he's when he isn't absolutely on point. Bang yeah. on the money. And you're right, Stephen, in what you said earlier, in that he had a brilliant uh, ability to convey the fear that we were supposed to feel ourselves. I've, yeah, there are certain doctors that, that different doctors have, have, have different sort of specialities. One of Pertwee's was that, that, that ability, like the moment we, we were talking about earlier with, with, the, with, the, um, with the sea double coming through the door, an ex- an astonishing level mm-hmm. of 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 not fear but a communication that what i am looking at is the most terrifying thing in the correct. universe you know correct and and it's it's just sheer focus isn't it it's yeah. it's like a laser yeah. beam it's 100% yeah. focused on that yeah. moment yeah, yeah. and it keeps you in it and, and and in a way that somebody like tom baker to me doesn't much as i love tom baker he doesn't have that same ability because he has more of somehow a detachment mm. from it um mm. he's more somber faced tom yes. tom is um, and so he stays in the moment in a very serious somber way whereas pertwee absolutely transmits that fear he pertwee yes. can do a lot i think the other thing with pertwee is he just brought that gravitas as as you know gravitas is just essential to the role of the Doctor. It's peculiar when it comes to John Pertwee though, Simon, because here is somebody, he'd been in entertainment by the time he took up Doctor Who, he'd been doing it for like 20, 20 years, I mean 30 if you count his time before he, he uh, went into the, into the Royal Navy. So he'd always been sort of entertaining and he came from a kind of, a kind of theatrical background, didn't he? I know his family situation yeah. was quite complicated. Mm wasn't it but he had an extraordinary life and and even up until a few years ago we were still finding out new things about john pertwee that he worked in the kind of in the secret service and all these other things an extraordinary life one long lived and he i always get the impression as you as you've just described that charisma that he just had that naturally some people have it and some don't i think actually everybody who's who's played the doctor has had that and you think, well, is there is there a typical person would be almost destined to play the Doctor? And you look at the backdrops of Tom compared to John, compared to, and they're all so wildly different. John Pertwee's background couldn't be any more different than than, than Tom's or, or Peter's. It was an extraordinary life, and so and to become a household name off Radio Two, where people couldn't see him, and yet to look like this, you know, really good-looking man with. A, a very emotive face, natural charisma. It's almost as if the part was waiting for him, and yet it, it had been on for seven years. You can you can almost forget that when you watch Spearhead from Space. Mm. But but I mean, also you, we've got to remember that it was very very brave decision of Derek Sherwin to cast him because of the fact that he was so well known for for, for comedy. Um, it, it was, you, you wonder what Derek Sherwin was thinking. Was Derek Sherwin expecting Doctor Who to suddenly move into comedy territory? Well, of course, Patrick Tratton had brought elements of comedy, but it certainly wasn't comical. And, and so 
it, I just think Derek Sherwin made a, a huge leap there by casting Pertwee. And I suppose that Sherwin, when he was working on it with Troughton, he was kind of innovating and trying different things. Troughton, even though Troughton was about to leave, I don't think Troughton ever stopped trying to innovate with the part either. And they, and Letts and Pertwee probably benefited from that when it came to this quite drastic at the time reinvention of the show with a kind of Quatermassy kind of kind of vibe so that the doctor's exile to earth is in the employ of, of unit helping fight off uh, alien threats and thwarting the mad scientists all that kind of thing so it, it proved exactly right for the times simon you know earlier on we talked about the, the power cuts and things like that but there were lots of things making it through to the press around that time whether about about new uh, new scientific uh, discoveries and evolution and all manner of things in sort of similar way that there are now. So that was the what the series itself had one eye on. Whereas Pertwee himself, he brought the version of himself that he'd never been allowed to be on screen or, or on the airwaves. He, and he could bring the Bond as well, because he was clearly a big fan of, of the Bond films and books. So he brought that. And yet he managed to remain and to make the third Doctor more importantly. To make the third Doctor, for him still to be avuncular and to sometimes be petulant and, and childish too and alien as well uh, but he's next to unflappable isn't he in that uh, inverness cape and the, the frilly shirts he's next to unflappable in the face of danger and you only get the odd flicker on his face when you see a tremor in pertwee's face then you know that the s is really going to hit the fan and it's <laughs> you know different actors are going to respond to it in different ways but that's something that i've only quite recently seen in his performance it's taken me several years to get on the level with this with this yeah, incarnation you, of the character do you don't you what's your first memory of Pertwee? because i think are, are you're sort of you're of the baker generation aren't you i am um, the yeah, tom so baker generation yeah my yeah. earliest memory of john pertwee is watching carnival of monsters during the five, five faces, faces of doctor, of doctor who, who. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, because that was extraordinary for us, those of us who, who grew up with Pertwee, because because yeah. uh, we hadn't seen him since Planets of the Spiders because yeah. of the way that, that it was impossible to, because there were no video machines and because I, 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 wrote my, I wrote my first letter to the BBC requesting repeats in 1976. Wow. And I got I, a I really... letter... And I got a letter back from Sheila Mullins, brackets, <laughs> Miss. And she said, thank you, dear Stephen, thank you for your letter and clever drawing. Because <laughs> I'd drawn a lot of Doctor Who characters <laughs> in this. Um, she said, unfortunately, now this, this must have been about, it would have been just after season 13 finished. Mm -hmm. So she said, unfortunately, for various reasons, um, we will not be able to repeat any of these stories, um, largely because um, they are in the process of being wiped, being oh. destroyed to make to make room in the archives, and also because of contractual agreements with Actors Equity, we are not able to show stories, any, any episodes of anything more than three years old. Mm -hmm. However, she said there will be a repeat of the seeds of doom this summer there wasn't anyway but, uh, <laughs> she lied but the, but the point with the point of that letter of course was the yeah. first the dawning of the realization yeah of what was actually happening to to mm. all this stuff did you have the radio time special sign do you know uh, i didn't have, i didn't have the, the poetry on i didn't have the 10th radio time special ah. 20th. 
because because I wasn't I, I wasn't even aware in those days. Well, I remember watching the three doctors very yeah. very clearly again vividly. Yeah, yeah. That's very interesting because because you know I, I'll often say, you know, because of the um, recent work I've been doing, that I, I remember the three doctors. Well, I do remember the three doctors, but I don't remember the old man on the screen. Well, I remember an old man on the, but I didn't know who he was. Carnival of Monsters is the first story I remember almost every episode vividly of. And episode two was the first episode I ever saw in colour round at my grandmother's because we had a black and white telly until episode four, Revenge of the Cybermen. So I remember very well from, from, from Carnival of Monsters onwards. Because when the trailers would hit on Friday and the, and the link person would say, tomorrow evening, the Doctor and Joe face a new threat. It was the Doctor and Joe, and as far as I was concerned, it had always been the Doctor and Joe, and it would always be the Doctor and Joe. That was, <laughs> I didn't know about the other Doctors. I suppose at that point though, Stephen, the only things that had been commercially available in print were very much about now, weren't they? So if an annual came out, yeah. it would be about the current Doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things like that. Yeah, that yeah, was the first right. publication to, as you say, say, oh, here's a, here's a history, here's a, yeah, almost yeah. like a, a document of something to, to speak of legacy. We yeah, now yeah, call yeah. it legacy, even though it was 10, 10 years. It doesn't seem like a great, great deal of time. Well, well even, even the trailer for The Three Doctors, if you look at it, it says, tomorrow evening, the Doctor and Joe face a new threat, the gels. Doesn't mention The Three Doctors at all. <laughs> you know, that's the bloody anniversary story. You know? <laughs> More, more so, innocent, more innocent times, weren't they? And they, they did use, they used this opportunity and this actor. I don't know how hungry he was, but I think the deeper that he got into the part, the more confident, comfortable he appeared to be. I think he got deeper into the, into the psychology almost of the Doctor, who I know that some people have said the Doctor's quite a two-dimensional character, always largely responds in the same way. I, I don't think that Pertwee saw it like that and i liked that balance that, that he can sometimes be incredibly seemingly arrogant and, and not appear to care and and yet to be so paternal towards his companions in particular and so exasperated with the brigadier one minute and yet value his friendship and trust trust his judgment implicitly the next i think it's a fascinating take on the character that was probably a little too subtle for me when when i first saw him i found the third doctor the hardest to get to know that was despite the repeat so i saw carnival of monsters and then the curse of peladon and then the five doctors which i've had in my life sort of forever you'd have, forever course, really. you'd, you'd have been because i think you said in our first chat that your your first memory was the reboss operation is that right or, no. or one of your or you the first one you remember very vividly uh, as a child it's one of the first ones yeah yeah, yeah. all my memories sort of come from come from tom yeah i don't remember watching pertwee in fact but, i'm certain that i didn't so you must have been used to a, a more comedic take on the role i suppose yeah and, and yeah. perhaps saw that as being you know what, what it was about so and pertwee because of course early baker is much straighter of course is is, is, yeah. is well my, my favorite tom baker um but yeah, the, the, it must be quite a culture shock if you're if you're used yeah, I to something that's I got a lot see of the comedy in it. Yeah, I couldn't see the doctor in Pertwee's yeah. choices, in yeah. his aura, in in his physicality. I couldn't see him I, I, the way that other people could. At the no. karate chopping, the the dandiness, the gadgets, working for the military. I I, I wouldn't say I ever thought, oh, this isn't Doctor Who, but I certainly couldn't get a grasp of it. Wow. It took, it took yeah, quite yeah. a long time. 
So and maybe it's something that you need to see in context, having because because we were kids at the time, um, and, and we were watching it for what it was, and of course at the time we were watching it for the monsters. Um, that's that's mm. what you you loved about Doctor Who at that age, um, and so maybe it's a case that we almost fell in love with the third doctor incidentally because we were watching for the daleks and and the sea devils and all that kind of stuff it's, whereas yeah. you dan were coming from a more sort of slightly more um analytical approach because you were that bit older um i'd latched on to that central character that's that's what it was i latched on really really hard well particularly particularly to peter davison so okay, when I yeah. started to discover the the era uh, in piecemeal fashion, obviously it was sort of dripping through to me. But he was still at odds with what Peter had done and what Tom had done. Uh, not I think there was, was Colin's choices were kind of lining up in some ways, not in others. So that I, mean, it, 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 I mean, it, it is difficult because in a way, when you look at John Pertwee's performance, there are elements in it. Of, of, for example, the sixth Doctor, that abrasiveness, as you just said, when he was very argumentative and, and, and um, irritated by the, the Brigadier, for example, there's all that. Well, certainly in the early years, it, it obviously mellowed as the time went on. But in the early years, there was a, a great deal of friction between the Doctor and the, and the Brig in particular. Um, and so there is an abrasive quality that, that, that actually comes to the fore with the Sixth Doctor. And so I can say, I've never really thought about it before, but I can see what you're saying, that sometimes those, those kind of abrasive choices can make it harder to relate to the character but it somehow it didn't maybe i was just too young at that point you know what i think part of it was as well simon the fact that that john pertwee to me was wurzel gummidge and john pertwee was also john pertwee because the man yeah. was a familiar face yeah. on british television on things like blankety blank and chat shows and things like that so i kind of knew him already he wasn't the mysterious alien steve and he was kind of he was kind of a celebrity with a, a small c and he used to go on these shows and he'd talk about his time on doctor who i think part of me i didn't realize it was the same show and i've got an example here to, to play for you now of pertwee doing his razzle dazzle maybe you should say something like that john why do we all love creepy crawlies and monsters oh it's it's fantasy, isn't it? It's what the Jews and what the children said. They revel in it, all the blood and the guts and the gore. They are bloodthirsty, lot. Of course they? they are. Yes, yeah. they love it. I mean, all children used to watch monsters. Then they watched Doctor Who. They used to hide under the table or behind a chair. But you try to put them outside the door, they'd object very strongly. We just love being frightened, don't we? We carry, we carry this on into adulthood, I suppose. Of course, yes. Um, of course, you, you were, you were in, involved with the odd, uh, the odd nasty and horror yourself, <laughs> were you not, in, 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 your, in your persona as Doctor Who? I've often wondered when you're making those things, I mean, television studios are so false in a sense, but were you ever, ever frightened yourself by anything that, that happened to you in making that series? No, not really. It's very hard to be frightened by cardboard and tin, um, and that, with a chap inside it that you just had lunch with. But, um... <laughs> well, I'm afraid we're not going to frighten you tonight, because we, we, we have something of a surprise for you, and we thought you were going to fall off the back of your chair and all that. Um, we've got, actually got a Dalek, you said the chap you just sort of had lunch with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there he is, it's Fred's Fred, yes. Three cheeks do that, you might not, you not, 
that is... That is the voice of John Scott Martin. I'd recognize it anywhere. Am I right? John Scott, we are We weren't exactly alarmed. Thank you very much indeed, John. You weren't exactly frightened. You see, I've always found those terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I refuse to be frightened of something that's made of tennis balls, cardboard, and sink pumps. Um, <laughs> which, which Nick Briggs has never forgiven him for saying. And uh, and and, cause it, and of course, um, you know, he, he he did despise the Daleks. Yeah. What was what was most heartbreaking for me was not discovering that he wasn't frightened of the Daleks. I didn't have any respect for them, but. And tapping in very much to, to to Dan's explanation as to why it was perhaps difficult to uh, acclimatise himself to the Persway Doctor um, was the morning after the broadcast of one of the repeats of Carnival of Monsters, going to the bus stop and some kids slightly younger than me talking about telly the night before and one of them went, Ah, did you see Wurzel Gummidge trying to be Doctor Who last night? I thought, oh my God. They all think he's Wurzel Gummidge. Yeah. And you, I wanted to go, no, 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 no. He's Doctor Who. He, ah! <laughs> there it is. That has been an entry point for some people who liked yeah. Wurzel Gummidge and then found that, that they became fond of yes, his Doctor yeah. because they liked Wurzel Gummidge. But, In the same but, but it's, it alienated others like Dan, I think. Yeah. And, yeah. But of course, as far as I was concerned, you know, <laughs> Doctor Who was John Pert because I didn't know any other and there were almost never any interviews with him I think there was the yeah. one where he went on with the Who-mobile on Blue Peter but until the series Who Done It he wasn't regularly known uh, for, to our generation for being anything but Doctor Who so, so the, the illusion wasn't spoiled the, the thing to remember is that following on from that is that at that time in the in the mid 70s he was absolutely huge as doctor who. as doctor who you know that i do remember yeah, yeah, he, he was yeah. very he was very prevalent and again i'm the same as you i didn't know that i remember my parents sort of dimly saying that there'd been other doctors before mm. john Pertwee, and i kept grilling them and saying well who were they what were they they hadn't got a clue i yeah. think it's safe doctor. to say that Pertwee's career was never the same again as you say so people got used to seeing him as him maybe and maybe he became more comfortable with it i don't know i mean i i interviewed alex from the who shop she talked very generously about her personal relationship with john and how he suffered terribly with stage fright and yet you would never think it when you see when you see him walk onto the stage on, on just on wogan with his chest pumped right the way up and, and speaking in such a commanding way he appears unflappable then the idea that pertwee could could suffer with stage fright i've always found that I found that fascinating since well, since Alex told me about it. It's compensation, isn't it? A lot of performers are like that, you know. They're, they're, there's and Katie Manning, I think, in the interview she does one of the on one of the Blu-rays talks about how his vulnerability, his sensitivity, how he was easily hurt, you know, how he was easily offended, um, and there's this this huge kind of theatrical front, which a lot of you know a, a lot of actors masking, veiling, masquerading that their, their sort of. Uh, their their fragile you know that their sort of timidity underneath it all um well, but what what was just just to what one more thing about about pertwee in the immediate aftermath of doctor who, i think it was it well it was it was the the first series of of it was between seasons 11 and 12 was a series called who done it but the persona he had in who done it was very like the doc when he presented it 
In fact, he'd often say, he'd say, welcome to another series of whodunit, or if you prefer it, Doctor Whodunit, he'd say. And, this, and, the, and he, it was like he, as the doctor, was presenting it. The persona I, there. I, I, and was, you're was, right. And I remember as a kid just being absolutely thrilled by him. Absolutely. Because yeah. you, I, as a kid, I did feel like Doctor Who was presenting yeah. it. Yeah. Um, it yeah. was, as you say, Stephen, a very similar persona. Um, and it, it was just really thrilling to see this man who I adored at that point on another program and i didn't quite understand why at that age why that there's a separation between the action and the character so yeah he was doctor who present and the fact that it was called who done it i know perfect it, yeah. Yeah. They, they tapped into that obviously <laughs> yeah, yeah. of course oh, yeah. they knew what they were doing yeah, yeah. That's well right, yeah. for yeah. all that the the uh, involvement with doctor who the doctor certainly revolutionized john pertwee's career i think and sent him off in a, a different trajectory to one that he could ever have predicted one that would last for the rest of his days he, he became instantly identifiable with with both the doctor and Wurzel Gummidge and he would remain so at the third doctor himself undoubtedly initiated a rebirth of interest in the series even if it would mean that Pertwee would have to cross paths with the Daleks at some point who did bore him to tears we all know about that and we're going to get stuck into it in a couple of minutes that's after i remind you that if you'd like to do some real-time traveling of your own each and every edition of this show past present and future is just a tap or two away on the device of your choice but only if you know where to look there's a wealth of reviews previews interviews geek outs and deep dives with all our regular panelists and some pretty awesome guests we know there's something for every fan over at type40.podbean.com about that later on as well as a junction where we'll make contact with the matrix of all knowledge that we call the fandom podcast network we're gonna have a word about all the other shows and treats for the years they're on offer over there as well we're going to pull to open now and maybe maybe we'll light the way to it looks quite treacherous out there we've got a whole a whole alien world to find our way through and a big chunk of classic doctor who to get stuck into classic series of Doctor Who obviously on screen for 26 whole seasons and some stayed longer than others some try to forget but with John Pertwee his relationship with to the character and to the series I think was a little choppy he stayed in the series for five seasons hadn't he and I think 24 stories I think is the count on that so it's a good chunk of stories but in the midst of all that there's always the odd one or two which I think that as fans we watch over and over again whilst just because it's easy or because they're old friends and we know them scene by scene and it's just cozy but there are others that i think whilst then i wouldn't say they're unloved but just sort of fall between the cracks and this one is definitely the case when it comes to me so i'm going to pop over to to my my mate stephen here who's going to remind me what the plot of death of the daleks is is all about what's going on in there a power failure in the tardis draws it off course and the Doctor and Sarah Jane Smith end up stranded on the bleak planet of Exelon. They soon meet members of an Earth expedition in a similar situation. The humans are searching for a rare mineral, but first they must find out what is draining their power and avoid what's inside another grounded spaceship, the Doctor's oldest enemies, the Daleks. 
I've got a shiver there, Stephen. <laughs> Have you done this before by any chance? <laughs> so this is the entity's death Double the dogs, the classic Doctor Who story from, from all the way back there in, in 1974. It was broadcast between February and March of 1974. And of course, it was written by, by who else? Terry Nation and directed by Michael E. Bryant. Now, Terry had, um, what would you say his relationship was with Doctor Who at, at this point, Simon? Because he'd been away from it, hadn't he? Yeah, I would he say he'd come back with his tail between his legs, but he'd well, come back and he was writing Dalek stories again. And... Yeah, because of course, the, the background to what had happened, I mean, this was, uh, this was Terry Nation's seventh Doctor Who script and his sixth Dalek script. Um, because of course he'd written the keys of Marinus as well in the 60s. But this, the, the reason Death to the Daleks comes along, written by Terry Nation, is because uh, Barry Letts and uh, Terrence Dix, by their own admission, made a terrible faux pas by allowing Louis Marx to write Day of the Daleks. Um, uh, and that had caused all manner of ructions that, that, that Terry oh. Nation's agent was not at all happy because they should have come to Terry Nation to write the Dalek story and, and it was just a mistake on the part of uh, Letts and Dix they just didn't they didn't think about it and so anyway apparently over a very very champagne fueled lunch uh, because <laughs> Terry only drank the best champagne I think he only drank champagne truth to be told nothing else um, <laughs> and so over this this champagne lunch they, they agreed okay we're really sorry Terry should have brought you in and so as a result we, we, we guarantee we'll give you a Dalek story um, to, for you to write in every season from now on which is why you end up with Planet of the Daleks and then Death to the Daleks and then Genesis of the Daleks um, and so that's why Terry Nation is back and as you say Dan he was a little bit tail between his legs because of course he tried to sell the Daleks to uh, America uh, and it had failed and so here he was um, back on familiar ground uh, writing the Daleks for Doctor Who and also, you know, let, let, let's not forget that, that just about all of the Terry Nation sort of tropes are, are in, you know, this story. <laughs> Every, this is a bit like... Have you, have you got a bingo card there? Have we got one? You need one, don't you? Because, it, you know, it really is the greatest hits of, of, of Terry Nation. You've got desert planets, deep space missions, um, handheld bombs hunt down hunting down a precious midwife you got monster infected places power struggles within groups self-sacrifice a friendly alien who, who who helps one of the companions it, it, it's literally incredible that just about every terror nation thing apart you from did, the jungle planet you didn't even say you didn't say plague there you, you managed to plague, oh, plague. <laughs> yeah you know. There's so many, isn't there, Stephen? There's so many. You can't remember them all. No, no. There's even a character called Tarrant, Simon. Even a character called Tarrant. You're quite right. Which is one of his... That was that was his favourite character name, of course. Um, and so, and so the, actually, the, the welcome addition to this, and I still think it's a brilliant conceit, is this idea of this huge energy drain. Um, that actually that actually drains the, the energy of the Daleks as well, and I still think it's a that was a pretty cool idea. So, Terry Nation, I think he was one of those people that he had all of these tropes that he brought to, but he always also brought one cracking new idea, and that's the cracking new idea in Death to the Daleks, and it delivers in spades, I think personally. Well, I suppose he would later look at that again with well, this is something that I believe was kind of taken from Arena, the Star Trek episode. And he would again revisit it for uh, Jewel with Blake Seven. So I think you could be looking at similar riffs on the same thing. We've got a party of people rather than single people, but it's kind of kind of the same. 
But but I think as I said, this is what Terry, Terry Nation did best, and I think I think Death of the Daleks is very much it's sort of Doctor Who comfort food in a way because it's got all of those familiar. It's not breaking any new ground. If you want to see it like it's treading water, you can do. But I don't see it like that. I see it very much a celebration of what I personally love about Doctor Who. And I, again, I remember this story very, very vividly. Um, I remember watching this one so clearly. This was this is one of the first Doctor Who stories. I do remember the story really clearly. Didn't Where? understand the time. Where was Michael E. Bryant coming from with this? Because he was he a, a bit of an old hand, a trusted hand in the stable of directors on the show at this point? Well, he was, wasn't he, Steve? I mean, as you mentioned, Sea Devils, well, but he'd also done Colony in Space. Well, he's, 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 yeah, exactly. I mean, he's, he's, he's already directed, for my money, two to, to of the strongest um, Persuade stories. Um, the Gr Devils, the Green Death and the Sea Devils. Sea Devils and the Green, and the green yeah. Death. He's, and, he, and he broke his teeth on Colony in Space. I mean, he, he'd been working on the show right from the beginning i think i think he was, yes. he was, he was an assistant on the daleks i think correct trainee assist was it his hand yeah his hand in the in the gorilla gloves oh, as it were in in, 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 the, the, in the dalek mutant in the yeah. dalek mutant yeah yeah mm -hmm. and he was um, also he was he, he he graduated up to being a production assistant on the daleks master plan as well so yeah, you're right yeah. Stephen. he'd been yeah. right the way through he'd, he'd worked he, yeah, he, was, he was working on power of the Daleks. i mean he, he um the reason why the daleks a painted silver um after having we the, the first we daleks had got got used started we'd started to get used to the darker colored daleks but he, yeah. he likes the the uh the the, the black and white mm -hmm. um era daleks and so he, no 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 we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna paint them the original colors and i think if they're exactly the same livery as as power of the daleks i think um, that was also something that I struggled with when I when I first found the story. So this was a four-part story, first broadcast during the, the early part of 1974. And uh, the cast, it's got a, a good supporting cast. We've got John Abeneri's in there as Richard Railton. We've got Duncan Lamont playing Dan Galloway. Joy Harrison's Jill Tarrant. Julian Fox plays Peter Hamilton. Neil Sealer plays Commander Stewart. We have uh, Michael Wisher provides the Dalek voices, very distinctive Dalek voices. Again, this is another thing that when I found the story, I struggled with that too. But uh, most, I think most notably, we have the addition of Arnold Yarrow playing Belal. He tends to get all the attention when we look back at this story, doesn't he, Simon? Because he's a, mm -hmm. a memorable character, like you say, who gets paired with the Doctor. Yeah, and, and only recently, was it last year we were celebrating his 100th birthday or something ridiculous? It's, like he's that. 103 now. 102, that's right. He's now yeah, 103. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And he's yeah. still alive, God bless him. Um, uh, absolutely. And because this is the second time we hear Michael Wisher's voices, first time we see, uh, and the only time we see Arnold Jarrow as, uh, as Bel Al. John Abeneri, of course, we'd seen previously. He'd been in a few from the Deep and the Ambassadors of Death. Um, but you're right, Dan, it, it's, it's, it's Arnold Jarrow as Bel Al that really brings something. I think, I think, I still think he would have made a great companion. It's just a beautiful character to watch. He's a very likable character, um, and he's very accessible for the audience. I, because I this is quite character. this is quite an adult story. I I feel I felt it when I first saw it, and I felt it again now rewatching it. It's very very adult. Some of the themes and some of the moments. I think the mood is very adult, and it's quite uncompromising. And then around halfway through, this character of Belal is introduced, Stephen, 
and he's almost childlike to the mm. point and he, even though because the doctor's separated from sarah at that point but yeah. you see him with his he's got his arm around Bilal, and that he has a, a paternal sort of relationship with him and mm. so he, he is sort of a, sub, a substitute companion and i think it just works brilliantly and he, him being a, an alien obviously he's humanoid-ish uh, yeah. but him being yeah. alien as well gives this again something that i don't think i'd seen the series do before yeah he's, he's it's a remarkable performance by arnold yeah it's, and it's a it's a, another in the line of of great masks by john friedlander of course at the time um who'd done the sea devil masks and the and the and the draconian mask and the organs and was to go to, on to, to to create his his masterpiece the next year with with davros so the mask is working very well with and the costume and everything but it's it, it is a it's a look and it is he's probably the most successful of those terry nation uh character who looks like he's spooky to start with but turns out to be um an ally you know mm. so there's loads of them there's west wester in planet of the daleks tyson in destiny of the severin. severin obviously yes there's probably several others that oh, um, undoubtedly it's another uh, sort of terry uh, um, but it's, it's, it works, it works wonderfully. And there's a little personal story here because I, I was incredibly fond of, of Bilal as a child. And my ex, when my son was very small, um, didn't want him to watch Doctor Who. And I, and I, and I eventually got her to let him watch some of the Pertwee stories. So for about three years, he thought John Pertwee was Doctor Who when when around about the time matt smith was on the television um because <laughs> his first one he ever saw was fear from space and he'd seen that he'd seen the trailer for death to the daleks and he'd completely latched on to Bellal in the in the trailer and he was around here and his mother used to come and pick him up we were getting towards the end of episode two and he was getting really excited because he knew that Bellal because he hadn't seen seen the trailer and Bellal was coming and she arrived a little bit early <laughs> And we, we were just coming up to the cliffhanger. And he was going, can I stay and watch the end? And she went, no, we've got to go now. I go, oh, please, please. And, I, and, and she went, no, we, we've got to go now. And, and then he, he suddenly burst into, but I want to see Bilal, he said. <laughs> oh, this program's still working its magic. And of course, he didn't disappoint when he saw him next week. And, and You mentioned Davros's mask the following year. Now, the difference there is that you can see so much of Michael Wisher through Davros's mask. Whereas Belal's mask, no, you can see none of Arnold Jarrow whatsoever. Yeah. So he's got a much harder job, a harder job. Yeah, than yeah, Michael yeah. Wisher, and he yeah, brings yeah, it yeah. to life. Yeah, he yeah, still yeah. managed to bring it to life. Yeah. And of course, with with um, the one thing, the one thing that um, that uh, Michael Bryant wanted to do with Belal's costume was do the front axial projection on it okay. yeah. uh, to, to to make it glow, to make the costume glow. And the front axial projection material was painted in it in sort of strands. Um, to, so that it would have, you would have sort of had the, the idea that there would have been glowing sort of veins, as it were, going down Belal, but but it just got drowned. I think there's about one shot where it just about manages to work, and you just about get an idea that there is a sort of slight glow to the to the costume, but it just got drowned yeah. out by the um, by the it's, studio. Like, it is very is very effective, and so are his eyes as well. They've got this sort of opaque look to them. As if he can see, you know, we can't see his soul, but he can see ours. And obviously, I think, I think Yarrow, I think he interprets that the character in a very physical way as well, which sort of makes up for that somehow. As if he's doing it instinctually. How long they would have worked with one another in in the rehearsal room, I don't know to to get to that. But it's delightfully balanced. 
I think this, yeah, sorry, yeah. No, go, you go, Stephen. Well, I was, I was going to say that I think that there's there's a um, a case in point here of how those rehearsals worked in terms of actors being able to develop um, quite mm. sort of close, intense uh, mm. relationships through the rehearsals. So you've got a situation there where, where clearly Arnold Yarrow, in this case, has developed with Sladen and with Pertwee very, very detailed and specific interactions. So first of all, I mean, I always want to give a shout out to Elizabeth Sladen, who is, who is always sort of impeccable and delivering. It was a lovely phrase of Philip Hinchcliffe's. She could do the perils of Pauline 500,000 different ways, yeah. you know, um, and all with, always with complete conviction. And her yes. first encounter with Balal, her sort of, her horror of what he looks like, but also her English politeness She's playing that at the same time as also gradually becoming aware of the fact that he seems actually quite nice. And it's so sort of layered that and multi sort of nuanced. And that, but that, that I think that sort of the sophistication of that interaction and later the sophistication of the interaction that he has with Percy. Well, she looks like she's afraid, but that, she, yes. but that she's pushing through anyway out yeah. of actually, now you've said that. I think, yeah, yeah, I see what you mean about I took it that she was pushing through because she believed that that's what the doctor would want her to do that she had that, that she knew that the doctor believed in her and so she should believe in herself but mm. now you've mentioned it i think i think some of the uh, the etiquette the britishness of that is there too i, I must not let this alien be offended by the I fact think, that i think i think that's there because she's because she's that sort of sophisticated so she gets all these different layers and of course yeah. bear in mind this is this is this is aside from you know the horror of links um the first alien she's met mm. she's the first time she's been off planet as well so mm. she's playing all that i think the the, mm. the uh the, the alienation of um, being on an alien planet for the first time and because uh, because arnold yarrow then gives such a nuanced performance throughout the story it it it, yeah. it, it, re, it, it repays the the, the 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 conviction that she that Sladen brings to the to yeah. the her performance as, as Sarah is repaid because of uh, because of the of the way Angelo plays it. The other reason I fell in love with Bilal, of course, is because he appeared in the Weetabix uh, stand-up cards uh, in in those <laughs> the, the second the second lot of Weetabix correct. cards, the, the one with the lot. game, the one with the game, the, correct. Uh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. From night from nineteen seventy six. Seven. Yes, it's seventy. I think because it had Hieronymus. Correct. Um, uh, so it must. I think it must be seventy seven. Seventy six going seventy seven. Yes, very yes. Well, the first time. the first lot which went out in season twelve. Yeah. Um. They they had only the giant robot was the only character from. The Tom Baker, they were they were all previous. They were all Pertwee's. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so listening to your your stories there about about watching this back in the day and, and your memories brings to mind my first experiences with this, which was on VHS back mm. in the in the late eighties. I had this on yeah. VHS, and I think it was actually the second tape that I ever had. So the first one I had was Spearhead from Space. Then I got this, and it seemed so drastically different to me yeah. from that very first Pertwee story. I mean, for me, a child of the 80s, a Dalek story meant that the, the Daleks were very formidable, ruthless, and the, their innards 
were uh, tentacle creatures who would burst into flames and, and writhe with goo and things like that. Whereas in this story, uh, they fall over and you can this doesn't seem to be anything inside them. So there was all these things when I first saw this story. But obviously when it's one of only two that one has on videotape, you do, you watch it over and over again until something comes along, something else may get released that I liked better was how I always looked at this story. I didn't not enjoy it, but it, to me, it, it was again, it wasn't, doc, it was Doctor Who, but not Doctor Who as I thought it should look. And the character wasn't, as I said earlier on, wasn't the kind of character that I recognised. So I did really struggle with this story and with the Daleks. I thought, did it, was it all really this cheap? It looked really cheap to me when I first saw it on VHS. Now I've got a, a rather different take on it, which I'll, I'll come to later. But obviously starting starting in the in the TARDIS, right the way back at the, the at the top of the story, the Doctor is travelling through time and space in the TARDIS again after after several years sort of largely being stuck on Earth. They they kept that going for as long as they could, couldn't they? But here, as you say, they've got Terry Nation back on board. He thrusts them into quite a familiar story. But I suppose because I suppose the kids who were watching this hadn't been served it in a while, they probably couldn't remember the last time Terry Nation had, had offered this. It, I suppose it doesn't really matter. But what really struck me about all of it right from the very start was how atmospheric it was and how how cosy it was because obviously the sets are all quite quite small and even though the locations are quite expansive all the sets are quite small and a lot of the reactions Stephen are, are very much on people's faces why wouldn't you focus on a, on a, a face as exquisite as Elizabeth, Elizabeth Sladen's or as expressive as John Pertwee's but it's with all the characters too it feels like quite a personal story I think that's because of the stakes as well because they're detached from a, a broader canvas of a situation aren't they a, a kind of an intergalactic conflict but they nation goes to great lengths i think robert holmes was scripted on this wasn't he i think he was uncredited it's the first yeah, one yes yeah. i think yeah. between them they go to great lengths to make sure that they focus on the human interest angle and yeah. i think when i again when i was a child first seeing this at like 10 12 years old that that largely passed me by now as an adult i thought it was very very rich and and it grabbed me right away simon the location footage in particular is very very well done i think it's very very atmospheric that opening sequence um of of, of one of the one of the members of the military team being shot um you know it's it's really quite uh it's Brutal. Really graphic it, it, and again that becomes a michael bryant thing because then of course he does exactly the same thing at the beginning of genesis of the daleks as well and um, so he knows how to start with a with, with an impact um but the location footage I, I i just think is brilliant the way they marry it up with the studio you're right the sets are very small they do marry it up with the with the studio footage well i i just remember it's the location footage as much as anything that I have distinct memories of. Um, in particular, this is the first time we ever see down a, a, a Dalek eye stalk, as it oh, were. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. this remarkable I idea. Was I was thrilling. That was thrilling at the time. Yes, yes. The, the, Absolutely the, the Dalek POV was, was, Correct. was one of the there, are, the... there are a number of... It's interesting, Dan, saying about the, the you know, be, be not being impressed with it in 1987. Um, and I, th there were certain stories that when I saw them again for the first time, and of course we didn't get to see them for a long time. So if you saw a story in, in like this one, 1973, 
I didn't see this until it came out. I think it was July 1987. I didn't see the Ark in space from 1975 until 1985 at a Merseyside local group meeting. And there was some when I saw the Sea Devils for the first time, it was almost shot for shot as I'd remembered it. There were some stories that were a bit of a shock, and I have to admit, this was one of them because my memories, of course, all seen in black and white, and as quite a young child you know so if i'm still five going on six when this is on and so your memories are, are dim and impressionistic and a child's memories and in black and white my yeah. memories of death Dogs are the first episode which i think is the one that stands up the best yeah i agree brutally. in fact peter capaldi said it's a, the first part of it before the sun comes up is almost perfect in its atmospheric yeah. creation of the of the weirdness of that planet and what Carrie Blyton's doing effectively at that point less so later on <laughs> with the Daleks but come to that but so when I saw when the, the VHS came out all my memories were with it being really dark and mysterious and hammer horror or you know yes. like, horrific and scary and strange the surprise the shock the astonishment the mild disgust <laughs> <laughs> of, of it not of it not being like that and and hearing carrie blyton's as somebody said it might have been i Rob don't feel Kim. quite so bad now steve because and, i thought no, these guys are gonna no, hate me slate no, this no, story no, no 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 i know why people disparage this story and i can see yeah. it from because i saw it from that perspective when i first saw it again and as somebody i think it might might have been rob shearman who, who said you know the music that carrie blyton wrote for the daleks is like accompanying the devil's horde with the music from the flumps which is a which is a 1970s lunchtime kids i remember the flumps, yeah. you remember yeah um uh, you know it's an astonishing choice to put that music together with the daleks there are times when the music is wonderfully evocative and works very well i think the music with the oh, city when sarah sees the city a lot of the eeriness in the a lot of the eeriness in the, in the first episode um is is odd and michael bryant again has chosen although Kerry Blunt had been used by Timothy Coombe for the Silurians. But again, yeah. he's gone gone for something off the beaten track to do something different. I get the impression that, Ma that Michael E. Bryant is looking for ways to make it more interesting for him as well. Even the scenes, he were at a clay pit. Doctor Who had been to loads already, and it would continue to keep going back to clay pits until 1989, until the classic show wrapped up. But here, yeah. he augments it i feel with those hand shots that you're talking about yeah, Stephen, yeah. with lots and lots of mist really? to the best of oh, my knowledge the, the show had never done that before it had never treated the location almost as a no. prop in itself as a, as a, a mobile studio and those exelons i was i was watching them there were certain scenes where he'd lit it in such a way where the exelons with their sort of capes their crusty old capes would almost appear out of they'd break yeah. the sand as totally if they were coming literally yeah. coming out of the landscape yeah. and and start to move around so there was points watching the, the dvd version where it's all been sort of cleaned up a little where i couldn't spot where the excellence were mm. hiding it was very mm. very effective and i did wonder you know would george lucas might george lucas have seen this when he was uh, creating star wars looking at the sand people Mm, yeah, yeah. Because they certainly are like a precursor to the sand people. There's no two ways about it. On the one hand, this this is the story where suddenly Daleks become 
a little bit too vulnerable. They are too easy to push over and you see that there's nothing inside them. They're too easy to, 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 to literally all you need is, is, is get a bunch of excellence with some wooden sticks, beat the Dalek over the head and it'll eventually just blow up. It, it's not really, it's not showing Daleks how we're used to seeing Daleks. Um, and of course, this is also, Death of the Daleks is the first time we start to sort of get suicidal Daleks where they just blow themselves up out of sheer desperation from having mucked up the job that they were that they were given to do. Do you think um, that was do you think that was Terry Nation? Because it does seem at odds with his own view of the character. So could that have been Robert Holmes pressing a sort of advantage that he would have had? Well, Nick it's, Briggs, it's, Nick Briggs' theory there is that that Dalek that that has a, a nervous breakdown is was supposed to blow up but they didn't have the budget to blow it up so it just it just mis <laughs> mysteri mysteriously ki commits a strange kind of um sort of reticent suicide doesn't it which is yeah which is possibly i mean he literally he, that that if, if we're talking about the right dalek that dalek only commits suicide simply because it happens to have lost jill tarrant it hasn't really done anything too no. disastrous it just happens to have lost its prisoner so it decides yeah. to self-destruct necessity um, is the mother of invention <laughs> Well, maybe there's a degree of desperation on Terry Nation's part that, again, he's just trying to do something different with the Daleks. Um, they, they don't, the, the, the tragedies, they don't come up across desperately um, menacing in the way that actually I thought they did do in, in Planet of the Daleks. They came across pretty yes. scary. Yeah, yeah, they do. And I think, I think also with Planet of the Daleks, um, there's, there's something about the ring modulation there with both Skelton and Wisher, which is very, very abrasive and i think they're, they're very close to the microphones mm -hmm. i think the daleks have never sounded more aggressive and 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 sort of alarming than they do in planet of the daleks mm. whereas they do um, they do seem lesser creatures somehow here don't they and you also yeah. wonder whether maybe getting really sort of psychoanalytical for a second you wonder whether just just taking away the firepower of the daleks although i think it's a brilliant conceit maybe it did just sort of emasculate the daleks and suddenly they just were not as threatening as they were previously and yet i personally adore the machine pistols absolutely. that they themselves with absolutely i think this is this is pertwee's the chase this story in many ways yes it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the it's the it's the sort of the dalek light story if you take it on its own terms it's also got some very sort of mysterious and quite you know quite deeply uh, disturbingly effective something early on but if you just take its its lightness on its own terms i think it's it's terrifically enjoyable and i it's got it's a run the... around isn't it steven yeah, it's a run yeah. around yes it but is because if, even though it is a run around people sort of go from place to place and get captured and fall down things and climb up things all that's going on we've got two alien races the daleks and an indigenous population which again we've seen before it's the it's that which is going on between the humans which i think is the is the most interesting because you would think and again i don't know who this came from whether it was nation or homes or a little bit of both but the human or the human characters in this they are shown as mostly quite layered and quite sophisticated for a family show there's a darkness underneath i mean one character in particular but actually most of them they just seem very, very human. There's not, oh, he's the nice one. Yeah, he may be nice, but he's also a little bit, a little bit pathetic because he's letting the side down. And you've got one who is, who seems to be completely ruthless, only out for himself. They develop him too. John Abenary is perhaps very anchored as the leader of the little group who meets a, 
again, a very fast end, doesn't he? I'd for, again, yes. I've forgotten so many of the details. I hadn't seen this story. I've been working it out for over 20 years. Yeah. I'd given it that much of a wide berth. I'd, I'd never even opened the cellophane on my DVD. <laughs> the last time I saw this was on VHS. Uh, the unedited one that came out in the mid-90s pushed it that far away. This is why I've been so surprised that, that I found so much in it as an adult. So Dan Galloway, he, he goes against the final wishes of his commanding officer, doesn't Correct. he? And he keeps it to yeah. himself because he's, he's only told him. He's, God, what, he's, a, what a piece of work. He's an, he, he's an, he's an acid character. Well, I, what I think is really interesting about this story is, is, again, this in particular reminds me so much of the Dalek annuals from the, from the mid-late 70s as well. The Marine Space Corps in, in uh, Death of the Darks basically are the anti-Dalek force, the ADF, uh, fr from the annuals. Or they're also very reminiscent of the Space Security Service. There, there we go. go. You there know, go. those, which, those which, annuals. Which, of course, that was the first time I saw the photograph of that. There on the you back. go. Um, there you go. Yeah, that's the yeah. picture of the, of the blazing Dalek. And that's as right, I say, yeah. they, 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 this story could have been out of one of those Dalek annuals. Yeah, Joel absolutely. Shaw, who was who's the main the main guy of the uh, anti-Dalek force in uh, the ADF in, in the Dalek annuals, could well have been um, John Abenary's character, Richard Relton, in in, in this uh, in this story. And so it's very very terrination from 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 that uh, point of view. Uh, and yet the other part of, of it that I love about it is that they look like they've stepped out of um, out of a 50s sci-fi movie, something like This Planet <laughs> Earth, you know. The, 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 yeah. The, do you With know the what I mean? Yeah. 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 The, 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 the isn't, isn't the insignia the same as the Blake 7 Federation insignia? on the, on the I on had the, to look on... twice at it when I rewatched <laughs> it, yeah. <laughs> It's certainly, it's certainly very similar. Um, it, goes, it goes in and out. I, I think of, of the characters, the, the, the best character there is, is, and the best played is, of course, your namesake, Dan Galloway. And, and, yeah. and from that 80s VHS version, there are certain, there are certain lines of his that just, just become, became Doctor Who lines that I would never forget, and, and partic the particular way he delivers them, like... Uh, He's frightened of the wee salt shakers. Is one of them, and uh, and yeah. that and that that line there. What is it? Uh, I'm sorry, Commander. I couldn't quite hear what you said. Yeah, that's yeah. The, that's the line yeah. of the story for me. And uh, oh man, where have you been? Where have you been hiding? That's another one. Um, and uh, he's Scottish. He has to say oh, doesn't he? Um, but. Uh, <laughs> But, it was almost um, like watching this again for the first time with me. I actually thought that that uh, Galloway was gonna was gonna bump him off. I thought, well, if he doesn't expire of his own <laughs> of natural gonna, of a natural gonna, death, he's gonna send him off with his with his with his knife. But I think yeah, it's it, it's and it, it's nice that he's sort of he's redeemed, isn't he? Because he may be a glory hunter, yeah. but, he, but he's he's obviously yeah. Actually, you you often think with with it's it's characters like that, isn't it, that actually get things done. And and we need people who are that ruthless. They move, they move the story along. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 and, uh, and uh, so so you know, I think it's um, I think he's he's well written and well played. I'm not sure about Peter and Jill. Jill and he comes off the worst, undoubtedly. I think she's bless her. She's a very weak character. And it's, she's it's and she often she'll be sort of putting facial expressions on her face, which the uh, you know is I know I need to be reacting somehow. Yeah. But I'm not quite sure what the <laughs> facial what the facial expression is for this emotion at this, yeah. at this moment. Yeah. Um, 
and they come across they remind me of sort of characters from a from a 70s sitcom or something or they, they could be they could be guests at um faulty towers couldn't abigail's they? Yeah. party it looks like she's about to bring out a quiche <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's exactly how it feels when, like when, out of a 70s uh, 70s sitcom at a dinner when, party when he says when he says um my father died in the last dalek war so it's he, you he could almost be be complaining about um the sort of the filthy room in faulty towers you know yeah my, my wife jill's terribly upset the bath was filthy and she found moths in the mattress. Yeah. <laughs> I always kind of think they're not really like the Marines that we had in Aliens, for example, no, are they? No, no, no. They not. are more dinner party guests yeah, than yeah. the Marines, than true yeah. Marines. Galloway's the only one I believe. Well, Abenaries, you know, always solid, isn't he? He's great. I, I hate to disagree, but I did, oh. I did believe in most of them. I know what you're saying about Jill. There was something, uh, she was perhaps a little too, too plummy. And yeah, looking back, looking back, but she was also there for the the doctor to he put his arm around her a few times as well. It's of its time. That character is of its time. And yeah, dead. yeah. And I hadn't looked at Galloway in that way either. I suppose him being an egomaniac and he, him thinking that he was the the one who had all the answers. Only he saw it this way. Only he saw it the right way. Only he was was placed to sort of save the day at the end. So I don't know if that is a redemption. Because it's sort of the natural end point, I suppose, of somebody being that full of themselves and, and a ruthlessness. But I suppose it also shows that um, that there's good and bad in everybody, and that it's may maybe not not black and white. We don't see characters on television so much now. Well, also, also, I think the thing is, it, it again just showed that character again just sort of shows Terry Nation for what he was very good at doing, which was just telling rattling good yarns um, and knowing. Uh, as Stephen has said, which character is going to move the story on. Um, it's one of those things, you know, we've laughed about all, all the sort of Terry Nationisms that are within this story. And yet very little of it, very little of the story is actually wasted. If you think how much happens in this story, in the different locations we move through, the different scenarios. There is a lot, yeah. There's a lot going on in this story and none of it's wasted. There's no subplots that meander aimlessly. Termination was nothing if not economical. As I was watching this again, I'd remembered, there's things I'd remembered about it, I couldn't remember the fates of any of the characters, I remembered Bilal and little things. But I thought, well, I know that they get to that sort of, there's a living city in this, but I, it came into the story a, a lot, lot later than I'd remembered. It does, it does, as you said, Simon, it moves the location exactly the right amount at the right time, and I feel that it does that all the way through the story. Those Im immensely um, unsettling scenes where the, where the, um, the Doctor has tracked the Exelons to their sort of to their lair, hasn't he? And and Sarah is going to be sacrificed, and yeah. they're chanting, and it, it, it's all like steady cam. So we, we're right up in these aliens' faces, mm. and you you've got no doubt at all that they they are going to sacrifice Sarah. Yeah. It, time time's up, and the Doctor, who, nobody's going to help him either, mm. and it, it feels very very claustrophobic, and mm. it stays there just for the right period of time as well. And how they get out of it is perhaps looking back a little hokey, but I didn't feel that like that at the time. At the time watching it, it had seduced me. I think Stephen, the combination of music, sets, the performances, everything just seduced me. I've had a total turnaround about this story. I think there are yeah, there, there are things that are that are very strong about it, and there are things that are weaker about it. But I, I think I think it's very solidly plotted, and um, some of the I think the music 
talking about the the sacrifice scene, the music of the uh, the high priest and all that stuff is 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 wonderfully cheery yeah. and strange and chilling and surreal, and the and the sacrifice scene is quite sort of sordid, isn't it? When they, when she's when she's being sort yeah. of narcotized with the, yes. with whatever is in the in the uh, in that um, in that goblet. It feels and, like she's and, being violated. And it does. Sarah. It does. It does feel. It it yeah. feels quite quite sort of. Um, you want to reach adult. into the screen yeah, and, yeah, and pull yeah, her away. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And and a lot of what there's a lot of inventive work from uh, always with with Michael Michael Bryant, but a lot of inventive camera work. You know the POV stuff. Of the of the Daleks, the POV stuff. Because I think it's the first time we get a POV from the absolutely, Daleks, isn't it? yeah, it is. And the POV of the of the Exelon. I mean that that and it's talking about the brutality of it. I mean, Sarah probably beats the thing to death in the TARDIS, doesn't she? Yeah. Um, and it's and still left in the TARDIS. Let's not forget it's still it's there. still there. <laughs> it's still there somewhere. It gets taken out. No, no. Dead Exelon from the TARDIS. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that POV stuff. Um, in the when when Pertwee rushes in to to save her, that's that's all very sort of the hands over the over the lens and everything. So within the the sort of the parameters of the 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 uh, the studio setup and the limitations, Michael Bryant's doing a lot of interesting stuff. Yes. Occasionally, Carrie Blyton is coming up with extraordinary stuff. Occasionally, it's not so effective. The Dalek theme, etc. It's a it's a very very sort of mixed experience i have with it because I, I still do think that first episode is incredibly strong and yes it must be very jarring for for fans who are used to seeing the daleks presented um as a as a as a very powerful threat um but it's 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 nowhere near as 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 offensive in that area say destiny of the Daleks. yeah no absolutely well um, but also all also there is a, there is a certain sort of pleasure and glee to be had from watching uh various daleks come to various sticky ends you yes, know that, that absolutely that, yeah that is yeah, that, is, that is quite satisfying to see mm. I, I mean the, the one that still stands out to me in particular is and i just i remember this vividly as a child is the Dalek up on the side of the of the of the hillside um, with the roots coming up out of the water. I mean it's a brilliant sequence. Brilliant. The roots coming up out of the lake, zapping the Dalek and the Dalek falling down into the lake. I mean that reminds me very much. In fact the whole story again, you know, I've just sort of said it reminds me a lot of the Dalek annuals. It also reminds me very, very much of the TV Century 21 Dalek comic strips. You know, you take the Doctor out of, and Sarah out of this story, and this could absolutely have been one of the TV Century Twenty One comic strips in there. And that that piece, that set piece in particular of the Dalek being zapped and falling down into the um, into the lake and having been zapped by the roof, that would have been a double page full color spread um, <laughs> in TV Century 21. Uh, it's got that, it has, to me, it has that comic book feel to it. Yes. Um, and and, it, and, it, and a visual a visual feel and again the the, the the sequence with the roots coming down through the corridor after the, well, the roots themselves simon they're so visually memorable as well absolutely that's what i'm saying there's a lot of visual visually memorable stuff in there and that's what hooked into me as a kid again i remember 
vividly that route scuttling down the corridor um, and as i say rearing up in front of the uh, front now of the they they do that wouldn't they with with cgi obviously it looks very very sophisticated but i actually think there's a sort of there's an eeriness to the yes. way that the roots kind of dangle and gradually yeah. shift as yeah. if they are as if they are tentacles of, of something that is alive and yeah. in some ways the city feels like a character in this story in the that, mm, those which, latter episodes which is how of course it's meant to feel um and this is where as i say that i i just feel the story rattles along because what you don't expect when the beginning of episode one you don't expect by the end by episode four we're going to be watching this weird <laughs> sort of almost psychedelic uh journey through this living city with with all these really weird characters that that, that, that come along it is quite a it's a bit of a trip episode four it's a bit of a trip i think it's um it's got it's, some it's weird... one of those you can take out and show people uh separate it from the rest say okay this was what doctor who was like then mm -hmm. and it would probably be a fairly accurate representation of what not just what doctor who was like then but what adventure television was was like then and what television of that age and i have the, to say, of limits I have to under, say under. this this wouldn't be one i'd show somebody who'd never seen doctor who before that's that's no. that's, that's absolutely i i would i would I, would, <laughs> I think it would always be i think it would always be genesis of the dalek but it's interesting i mean you you, you singling out the the scene um with with the root coming out of the water that was one of it was so vivid that it was yeah. that it became but it became sort of multiplied and misremembered in my mind what people have to remember of course is that when these things went out not only did we not stand much chance of seeing them again and we'd probably seen them in black and white but there were very few photographs from them either available so there's a photograph of the that one of the Doctor and Belle was in the Doctor Who monster book at the end of 1975 yeah. there's the picture of the Dalek on fire and then in Doctor Who Daleks monster book Doctor Who and the Daleks omnibus 1976 there was a picture of Pertwee with the surrounded by the Daleks they were the only photographs that I saw for years. The book didn't come out till 1978. Mm. So all your memories of a story would subside into mystery and myth. And so, you know, until until eventually you got to see the stories again. So the scene with the root, I'd remembered and I used to draw it as though there were loads of roots coming out of the, of the course you did. and attacking loads of Daleks. Yeah. I think I was drawing the next the next the very next day, loads of roots coming up out of out of the water and I'd and I'd created this memory that there were sort of loads of these snakes as I thought they were, attacking loads of Daleks. And that became so when again when I first saw the story, I was surprised there was only one root and only one Dalek because the memory had sort of... Um, this is fascinating to me because correct. a few years later, a few years later after this, I watched Destiny of the Daleks, which I know that people who are slightly older have a very dim view of, and did exactly yeah. the same thing. For me, the battle with the Mavellans and the Daleks, to right. me, that was like the Empire Strikes Back or something. Oh, it, right. it set my imagination alight. Yeah, 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 and yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm now looking at this story in yeah. a slightly different way too, and, and understanding why people have latched onto it and, and probably why it was such an early VHS release as well. Yeah, I think I think the thing is, I mean, you know, the picture that's on screen at the moment of the exploding Dalek, I think there are just so many visually arresting Im uh, images within the story that you can see why as a kid, as I say, you would be excited by seeing a Dalek exploding. It doesn't matter that the, the, the Dalek explodes just purely because they hit it with a wooden stick. Um, 
and, and, and the roots and then as I say once we get into the city and that that red and white checkered floor which is literally seared into my memory that red yes. and white checkered floor seared into my memory and it's one of the weakest cliffhangers in the entire history of Doctor Who that they just walk up to this floor and, <laughs> and, and look at it and we get a cliffhanger and of course that's because they had to juggle the editing it wasn't but that wasn't supposed to be the cliffhanger which no. is why it doesn't quite work but as a kid, that red and white board. But uh, yeah, it's one of the most. It is one of the most powerfully memorable cliffhangers of Correct. my childhood. Spot uh, and on. it's so frequently ridiculed. But watching it in black and white, because it was, it was, a, it was a. Okay. To, to, in my memory, it was. It looked like a, a, an aerial shot of an enormous black and white chessboard, and when and you know, bear in mind the Daleks are coming up behind them, and bear in mind. That when John Pertwee says "stop, don't move," you know that there's something to be frightened of. So I guess this, so. You know that the the other the other phrase for, for cliffhanger is suspended enigma. There was yeah. an enigma about that. What is that thing? He I knows so. there's think, something to be afraid of, and so I, that creates in your mind a sense that that it's threatening. You know? I think the that thing would is be a conscious, a very now. conscious decision, a very conscious decision, Simon. Of Pertwee's probably working with Michael E. Bryant. So, okay, we'll put we'll kind of put this onto you. You sell this. <laughs> yes, in many ways it is. Um, I, I, and so I, I think, as I say, because it was never meant to be the cliffhanger, it's kind of an awkward one to sort of kind of shoehorn in and try to make it work in the edit. Um, and now, with modern sensibilities and, and, and adult eyes, we can look at it and say, well, actually, it, it, it doesn't quite cut the mustard as a cliffhanger. None of that matters as a kid. What matters, and, and I just think it's, I, I don't know what it is about that red and white Board, but there was something I, I saw it in color i was looking at yeah, the ceiling yeah. color yeah, yeah, yeah. and there was something about it that the design itself i think it's, I, I think i think it's an interesting design i like i like it the is. of the because it's not just squares is it there's, some, there's something no. about it which is which is Correct. strange and somehow it, it, it's just a remarkable thing that, that one very very simple design absolutely blew my mind because it's I, I in many ways it's just so weird and so unusual when the same scene code comes along in the five doctors and they have that <laughs> black and white chessboard you, yeah. you immediately i i knew i guess that what they were trying to do was to and i don't know whether they were or not it doesn't matter in my mind they were trying to link it with this red and white checkboard I think, it's, I think it's, I think it's Terence desperately trying to find find a, a, another threat in in, in the uh, in the Tower of Russell. Oh, I remember to the Daleks. I'm gonna put that in there. But isn't it interesting that it doesn't work anywhere near as well as Death no. to the Daleks? It's no, the it design. Doesn't. It's also that Venusian hopscotch makes more sense than yeah. uh, pie. Yeah. What the hell, pie? Yeah, yeah. Never made. As easy as pie. As easy as pie. No, he didn't. The Greek letter pie. Well, that's the uh, that's probably the most the biggest bollocks moment in the whole of history. <laughs> Fond as I am of the five doctors, in all respect, and uh, to to the great Terence Dix. If the, there uh, is a com uh, a universal indelible image that, that comes from Death to the Daleks, it is that of of a Dalek in flames. Yeah, isn't it? The, oh, the yeah. photos are so so evocative. And uh, it could possibly be 
the reason why the the book cover, the Target book cover, was recently voted, in fact, I think it's been voted several times, the best Doctor Who book cover still of all time. This was by the artist Roy Nipe, wasn't it, Simon? Yeah. And it came out yeah. in 1978. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. This Absolutely. was probably one of the first paperbacks I ever bought, partly. Yeah, okay, yeah, judge a book by its cover. I, I tended to. <laughs> Sometimes I still do. It immediately grabbed me. It was very, very arresting. But also the title, Death of the Daleks, as well. Yeah, even, the, even the title is it's just four words. And it's yeah. just a flip. The, the, uh, the middle two words, two and the, have just been rearranged. The Death of the Dark. You know, it's a very typical Doctor Who title, but just slightly repointed, enough to sound really, really cool. It sounds like a Tarantino Doctor Who movie. Well, we're so used to of others, aren't they? The, the, yeah. the two there is, is quite sort of arresting, isn't it? It is one of, I think it's one of the most enduring and potent images of the classic mm. series, the burning mm. Dalek. And, and of course, it's a great joy to watch revived series episodes where they, where they have the budget to do it properly. Well, yeah, but, but this is where you see, I, I would favour the Death to the Daleks approach. Because Me too. That, that, that I, Dalek, but... once, it's been, once it's been destroyed by the Exelons, it's, it's, it's almost got a, oh, I don't know, kind of a, a, a Vietnam War kind of feel. It's like it. It's bleak. Yeah. The way it's yeah. done, it's very bleak. It's very, yeah. as I say, it's documentary style in the way it's done with handheld cameras. I'd seen it as being a totem of sorts, and they were almost dancing around it. Like this oh, yeah. Almost, yeah. almost ritualistic. Almost paganistic. I think I, like, I think I like yours better. I like both those 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 perspectives on it. That's 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 that it's that it's that's it's a ritualistic token, but it is redolent of an image from late sixties, early seventies news. That's news, right. News, or, or, news or, or, or um or Northern Ireland, for example, or where Ireland. we used to yeah. seeing those yeah, yeah, tanks yeah. getting burnt out on the side of the road. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. got that feel to it, very visceral. Yeah. Um, whereas now, absolutely, they do it in, in overblown CGI, and it would well. We've seen Daleks blowing up in overblown CGI. I don't know how many times, and I can't remember any of them or any of the stories that they're in. No, no. Whereas this is burned into into your no. memory. Yeah, yeah. And no, that says no. it all to me. I think I, I, I entirely agree with you. Um, I think it is it is uh, it's effective because it's so simple. You know, and 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 also practice. They're black, actually burning a real thing, which is good. Yes, CGI always looks <laughs> like CGI. sophisticated cartoons, doesn't it? Yeah, really? you know, it's, yeah. That's, I suppose it does. It's artificial. Yeah, yeah. As, yeah. as the years as the years go on, as well, I think that's increasingly so. Whereas you, you see something like this, and it, it does it, it. It's unsettling because you know it's you know it's real, and if yeah. you believe in the story, yeah. if you care about the characters, and the stakes seem seem reasonable and measurable in yeah. in that moment when you're when you're sat on the sofa then if it's something that you feel you can reach out and touch whether it looks cheap or not it's kind of by the by the by now i think that's why a lot of classic doctor who has now come out from under the cloud mm -hmm. of the idea that oh it looks so dated vintage television does that after long enough now i think when people talk about dated television they talk about things that were made in the early noughties whereas things like this kind of get a hall pass because they are of their own world and everything about the place that they exist in the costumes the the way it's shot the the clay pits everything is it, so idi idiosyncratic to a time pointing out that it is dated is, is just maybe dan it's that it eventually sort of comes full circle maybe it becomes maybe a few years ago it looked dated now it looks uh, that we're able to see it within context 
um, of when it was made. And so it no longer looks yeah. dated. It just looks, as you say, um, reminiscent of the time in which it was made. When things look dated, it's because they were made just a few years ago. And the technology or the stylistic approach has moved on, whereas something like this, which is how many years, 50 years old now. Well, like a capsule of something. Correct. It now has an integrity of its own. It surpasses yeah. being dated. It stops being dated because it's so long in the past um, that actually it, 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 it exists in its own little world, its own, its own world of the past. So it's not, no longer dated. I've always thought that. Um, and I think Doctor Who is the perfect example of that. There's not a lot, I don't think, in Doctor Who that I feel that, that in the classic run looks, looks dated. It looks of its time. But there's a difference, isn't there, between being dated and just and, and, and still being able to hold up. You know, as long as something still works and can hold on to its own and holds up to scrutiny, it doesn't matter. Whereas dated kind of suggests something that's 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 poor, that's of poor quality. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Doctor Who, classic <laughs> Doctor Who is not that. It's just that it, it, it's of its time. I'm fascinated by your observations, gentlemen, about this four-part Doctor Who story from all the way back in 1974. And as ever, I I have to remind that we know, all of us know, only too well. This is hardly the first word on any of these classic or new Doctor Who stories, and neither are they the last word. Either. They're just the latest word, and, and these are our personal connections, very, very personal connections, memories, and readings of it. I think that's another beauty of this show in particular, that we can all see all these different things, different strands of culture and, and of history, of real-world history. There's more where that came from too, but it's time for a break now. Time for us to parade the other podcasts that you'll find across the Fandom Podcast Network with us here to you now. Kevin's going to fill you in on all of that. Then you can meet Stephen, Simon and myself back here for more as we, we traverse the city of the Exelons and give you our rating for Death to the Daleks. Thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. Here are the other great shows on the Fandom Podcast Network. Culture Clash, where we discuss the latest in entertainment and pop culture. Blood of Kings, our show covering the entire Highlander universe. Couch Potato Theater, we celebrate our favorite movies. And Time Warp, our fandom flashback show discussing a year in movies and our favorite retro movie, TV, and pop culture topics. Good evening, discussing all things Alfred Hitchcock. Hair Metal Podcast, we cover the rock metal music of the 80s and early 90s. Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast, discussing the time-traveling Doctor Who universe. Lethal Mullet, an action film podcast, covering the 80s, 90s, and beyond. Also, check out the Lethal Mullet Network for more great podcasts. What a Piece of Junk, our Star Wars podcast. Making Treks, a Star Trek podcast, with a deep dive into the final frontier. The Fandom Show, our Fandom Podcast Network live YouTube show discussing the hottest topics in fandom. The True Believers MCU podcast, discussing the Marvel Cinematic and Television Universe. Union Federation, our Star Trek and the Orville show. And we're proud to welcome the BQN Network to the Fandom Podcast Network. Please visit our friends on the BQN Network, a Star Trek Universe podcast that also includes your favorite topics, movies, history, superheroes, and more. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on YouTube. The Fandom Podcast Network is also on all major podcast platforms. Fandom Podcast Network audio master feed is on Podbean at fpnet.podbean.com. 
You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, respect others and enjoy your fandom. Cheers for that one, Kev. He's teased and tantalized you there, as always, and we can even clothe you, too. There's merch to match all of the shows, including Type 40. If you head over to tpublic.com, search for the Fandom Podcast Network, and that's where you'll find the store full of all the team colors for all of the shows on everything from T-shirts to phone cases, tapestries. Every time I say that, it sounds more outlandish and ridiculous, but no, tapestries. It's all over there at tpublic.com. Dot com. Seeing is believing. Treat yourself. Treat your other selves. It all goes to support the fandom podcast network into the bargain too. So everybody wins. I'm back here with with Simon Horton, and Stephen Noonan on the on the planet, the planet of the Exelons, for death to the Daleks. And yeah, we, we've had our our big review of this, and we've unearthed all sorts of memories from our own sand dunes, the sand dunes in my mind, as I rediscovered this story after twenty. After 20 years, I can barely believe it. How do you begin to give this a score out of five? How many roots out of five would you give to <laughs> Death to the Daleks, Steve? Well, I'll go to you first. It, it can't be objective, can it? And and, and, no. and it can, doesn't none have of these, to be on this show. None of, none of these things. And, and it was I loved uh, you know the last section of what uh, what Simon was saying about about timelessness, the different difference between something that's dated and something that's of its time. I suppose everything. Yeah everything's going to be of its time and it's going to be clearly made at a particular time but whether whether that will mean anything to what's fascinating to me as as i you know have had the wonderful opportunity to, to get involved in the doctor who world in the way that i have is meeting fans who are in their people in their 20s or there's a there's a lad i've become very uh, good mates with who's only 19 and the way this program breaks down those generations so when you're having conversations with these these people that are generations younger than you about stories like this mm. it's as a, it's as though you're the same age and then and what this of course a lot of them came through the conduit of the revived series but then yeah fell in love with the, the classic series and then that then broadens their knowledge of the culture around it so they get to know about other series other programs and politics and society and culture of the world around 1974 in this case or whatever it is but it is astonishing how timeless this program has proved to be and how how it's 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 cultural significance and flexibility um down the decades 50 years ago it's made people are watching it as though um it's as relevant and, and as powerful and as vivid as it mm. was at the time and perhaps, well, you're, def you're definitely talking our language there, Stephen. Perhaps this is very, much, ways, very much the ethos of Type okay. 40, what we do. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm of course procrastinating giving the giving the score. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I can't give it any less. You're not allowed um, fractions or or decimal points. No, you can, well, yeah, well, when we originally started doing this, yeah, I'd say to people, stick to a, a clean number if you can. Well, but nobody listens. Nobody it, listens to me, so go for the go for the. I've always, <laughs> I've, I've already revealed that I have reservations oh. about it, and it's not the story I remember from 1974 when I saw it in '85. But of course, you come out the other side of uh, your teenage disappointment that it that it it, what, it didn't have the production values. That you thought it had etc etc and i think on the level um that it's what, what it sets out to do it does very very effectively 
and it tries to be um, adventurous. It tries. It tries. To, it tries to be Michael Bryant's trying to do innovative things with it. So for for all that and for all that, every time I watch it, I thoroughly enjoy it. And that my it's one of my sons who's now fourteen favorite stories. So it's it's timelessness is proven in that way. I can't give it any less than four. There you go. I think that's that's fair. How about you, Simon? How many roots out of four would you give? It's out of five, isn't it? Hey. Can you say? Yes, I do. Uh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. I'll, yeah. I'll go for that again. He's only allowed out of four. Take two. <laughs> okay, so yes, we'll go for that one again, everybody. Don't don't tell the fandom podcast network. They think I'm good at this. So yes, so, Simon, Simon Horton, how many roots out of five would you give Death to the Daleks? Look, the truth of it is, I think Death to the Daleks is, is as we've said already, it has some really really brilliant startling arresting imagery in it and some startling innovative arresting ideas um you know the 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 the, the city that is alive that then melts so memorably at the end what even though you can see suddenly that it's uh, when they do the close-ups on the little on the polystyrene bits you yeah. can see polystyrene just squint just squint or take your glasses matter. off doesn't matter. It, I just think it has some really, really remarkable ideas bursting out of it. And I think it's one of Terry Nation's more original and innovative scripts for all of the fact that we've said it's just got every single Terry Nationism within it. Um, as, a, as, a, as a true Doctor Who story watching it, I'm sorry, it ain't no robots of death. It's not Pyramids of Mars, it's not the Demons, it's not Inferno, it's not any of those things. So being really brutally, brutally, cruelly honest... This isn't like you, Simon. I'm surprised at this ruthless streak coming out. <laughs> well, coming well out. hold on, because as a Doctor Who story, I would probably only <laughs> give it two out of five. I'm sorry, I probably would only give it Wounded. two out of five when I'm comparing it with all the other stuff that it's compared with. But, yeah, yeah, and this yeah. is the big thing, I am going to give it five out of five, and you will forgive me for that because this wow. story means so much to me because I remember it so clearly, and I know that this was the point that I started to become obsessed with Doctor Who. Um, I loved Doctor Who at this point, but, but, but Death to the Daleks, because there is so much in it that is memorable. So everything before Death to the Dikes, I can remember just the nearest hint. Death to the Dikes literally burrowed into my brain in so many ways. And I know that I think this was the turning point for me where I it turned into an obsession. And so, so, how, so Simon, how often? Oh, sorry, sorry, carry on. No, that's it. I'm done. It's a five. Sorry, put your question down. So you, your four marks, five, five routes out of five for that. Five out of five. Well, my question would would be actually to, to both of you, but first to Simon. So. How often do you go back and revisit this story? Is this one that you've seen quite a lot? No, I actually haven't. You know, if I think of something like The Robots of Death, um, which I've seen, I, I literally haven't got it. I've lost count. Whereas Death to the Daleks, no, I would say I've watched this um, probably only five or six times. Um, and part of that is because actually for all that I've said that I think there's some brilliant stuff in there, I actually don't think it's a very good Doctor Who story. 
But because it means so much to me, the more I watch movie. it, the shakier it becomes. And I no, start to see the rough edges. And I don't want to see those rough edges. So I'm happy with it as a bit more of a... Of a no, I can completely less. relate to that. There are movies and TV shows that I haven't gone back to purposely because I don't want them to be kind of it. revealed as to what they are. How about you, Stephen? I mean, how often do you go back to a, to a story like well, this? When you when you watch classic Doctor Who, do you just, I'm in the mood for Death of the Daleks now, or I quite fancy Frontios, or do, or do you go through season by season in a very sort of methodical way? It's never Frontios. Um, the <laughs> um, I'm interested in, in, in Simon's... Um, response what what was it like how long was it before you saw it after it went out 74 uh, and, and, and were you like i was rather shocked yes by by, by it not in no way apart from i mean the, i tell you there, there were there were several experiences like this the first one was revenge of the Cybermen when that came out on video for the first time the first which is the first vhs yeah I remember i remember i had to go to a rehearsal i was in i was in sixth form and i was i was doing a play and i put it in and i and there was the first 50 minutes of it, which were quite good. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's quite like I remember it. And then coming back and being increasingly appalled as it gradually got further and further away. <laughs> this was another one. The worst one was the arc in space, because the arc in space in my memory was as visceral and as terrifying as Ian Martyr made it in the novelization. And he, although I love that novelization, I've talked about that elsewhere. He did that story no favors by turning it into Ridley Scott's Alien, Alien. Two years before it came out, with Noah's, with Noah's head exploding like yeah. a seed pot. So when I saw it in '85, I didn't sleep the night that episode two of Ark in Space went out because I was so frightened when Noah took his hand out of his pocket and and believed that that man was being consumed by this flesh-eating monster. I didn't sleep the night I saw it again, I because I was so disappointed. And and there's there's a terrible sort of like eviscerating sort of mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. humiliating feeling that can, can happen to me a few times with Doctor. There were other stories. Sea Devils looked exactly as I'd remembered it almost. Yeah, Frontier in space, pretty much. Um, various other stories. A lot of, a lot of them lived up to 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 my memories, but the ones that didn't, it took a while. For me to go back and 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 come to terms with on their own terms as it were and but once i did i i i that was it was i i'd expiated the the horror of it not living up to the memory and so i go back personal, to it. isn't it yeah and i and and i it's it's one i go back to and i find very comforting to watch and, and again it became a great favor to my sons so we'd watch it together you know um but the you know his favorite story is is uh, is my favorite story which is wonderful which is the seeds of doom <laughs> so that was a, a joy to see doctor who again that transcending the barriers of, of generations watching doctor who through the eyes of another child or seeing a child a child relating to it just as we did and then getting older and realizing it's more sophisticated than just something that's scary with monsters you know and the way and then 
and the way I look at it is that's how it should be because you know to, to answer your question yeah the next time I saw it after original transmission was yes with the with the VHS release that Dan you were talking about from the late 80s and yes Stephen it was a huge disappointment because it had seared into my brain so much and to say I, I passionately feel that that was my awakening with Doctor Who in many ways Death to the Daleks so yeah it was very very disappointing but and here's the here's the here's the the, the 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 counter to that, which is as you said with your own son, he fell in love with Death to the Daleks, and so he's seeing it in the same way that I was seeing it uh, 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 when yes. I was younger, and and the, and we've all said this that that that, that it fire Doctor Who fires your imagination, and we've all we've all talked about things that we misremembered from Doctor Who because we thought there were a million. Crinoids or a, or a thousand weird or whatever it was, we misremembered it as something bigger yeah. than it actually was. Now that to me, that's really crucial because if, if something, if Doctor Who can do that, if Doctor Who can fire the imagination that you think it's far better than you actually watched on screen, that's an absolute result as far as I'm concerned. Mm, mm. And so although I come back to it now and it doesn't live up to, to what I imagined Death of the Daleks was when I was six, yeah. it doesn't matter because in my brain, I've still got those memories that fired my imagination when I was six. And so that's, that's got to, isn't that one of the best things about Doctor Who that it can inspire you? Oh yeah. The show is being better than it was. The show is an inspiration and it is a gift with a magic all of its own. That I, I don't think I'll ever be able to quite nail it down. It's been, I mentioned earlier on, it's been two decades since I'd seen this, this story before. And so to come back to it after all that period of time and feel completely differently it does feel like a vindication for me uh -huh. in my continued ridiculous belief and devotion to this show, Simon. In many, many ways, exactly as you've just described, because here I am as, as a man in about to enter middle age. <clears throat> a middle age it's a long way away on. yet, surely, Dan, <laughs> a long way away. Thank you, thank you, Stephen. <laughs> um, yeah, so here I am now, all these decades, all these decades on, never mind from when it was first broadcast since i first saw it on vhs and to to feel completely differently about it i was engrossed in this wow right from the very first scene and almost from start to finish too if i'm honest my attention started to waver in episode four i'm not sure why I, i'd have to go, go back and probably watch it again to work out why but yeah, it did. It did start to drop a touch. Maybe there were too many plates spinning. I don't know. Maybe it's because the plot goes in episode four. There is no plot in episode it does four. Se it does seem to sort of just evaporate, and the things that that I was hanging on to see. What yeah. and we do get moments when Galloway gives his life. You know, we get we get bones thrown us like that. It doesn't quite deliver on the first on the first three. But I was enjoying episode one so much, in fact, <laughs> that by the time the Daleks show up, I'd forgotten the Daleks were meant to be in the thing. <laughs> That's it, it just wrapped itself around me, this story. Uh, uh, the, the city, I'd forgotten how haunting it is to look at. Yeah, the city's uh, and, uh, and all that, all that talk as well. I mean, obviously, even that is totemic as well. And it, it, it represents several civilizations from Earth history, doesn't it? And, and the Doctor has that moment with with um, it's with Bilal, isn't it? Yeah. Is it with Bilal where he says, "Oh, there's a there's a place 
on Peru. Earth that's just Peru. like this in Peru. Mm. And and yeah. you, you in a in a moment he's explaining it so beautifully. You can picture it in a text <coughs> in a textbook that you might have read at school. Go, yeah. Oh yeah. And then they just leave it there. They don't try and explain it, and no. they would now. They would go to great oh, yeah, lengths yeah, yeah, to explain yeah. that now. You get a flashback sequence and and, and all manner of things. Flash. We they see just that. they just leave it hanging there, like a nugget, as if we don't need. It's, but all this is monument to this this civilization that's been dead for centuries, okay. and that's never that's never not affecting in itself because we all realise that history forgets everybody, eventually, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, Pertwee, who I've uh, established, is. Probably my least favourite of the classic of the classic doctors. Not necessarily for anything that he's that he's doing. It's more what he's not doing in line with the character that I grew up with. But in this, I, I've I've gone on a, a thirty year mission of discovery with the third doctor, Stephen. So I'm now at a place where I understand him, I recognise him as the doctor, and I'm starting to appreciate with every revisit of a Pertwee story because I've seen them all all the way through three or four times but every time i go back to one i see something else Pertwee is incredibly commanding in this his take on the character is complete fully rounded out he's totally in line with it any any lack of if he ever felt that he wasn't right for the show or didn't know why he was taking it why they wanted him all that's all that is just gone perhaps perhaps the chemistry between him and Liz Sladen isn't quite there yet at this point but then again, they get separated for large amounts of it. So I think that's probably hard, hard to say too. But generally speaking, I think the fact that Death of the Daleks itself is so so thick with atmosphere, I think that that's its power. I think that's why it swept me away. It's why I'll probably be re-watching this one sooner rather than later. It's not going to be another 20 years. What, what I now realise is, and, and, and always strikes me with every Doctor Who story, and some of them are more successful than some of them, but even a story like this, which, you know, as we've all agreed, isn't the greatest Doctor Who story of all time. When you think it's of no the... Malt. But when you think of the, the, the conditions they were making these things on, and that they had to get 25 minutes in, in yeah. three hours, etc., all the things that we we know, it, it, it boggles my mind how good, how good it was even on the worst of bad days for yeah. it, that they managed to make it that good on that budget in that time under those circumstances some stories don't look as though they were necessarily trying that hard to do it death of the daleks i think does i think it yeah. looks as you were saying earlier dan with the way that with the way the exelons that they give the they thought about those costumes to make them look like they were made out of rock um you know they thought about the route and how they that's a very difficult special effect to pull off they thought about the city we've talked about the red and white checkerboard that it looks to me like they that there was a lot of effort poured into this story they were trying their absolute best with it um as they do with most classic but not all classic doctor who but this one they were I don't think there's a Persui story where they're not. That is an era. It's to do with, it comes from Barry Letts, I think. Of and, course, and Terence Dix. And Terence Dix and, and the directors that they surrounded themselves with, who, who yeah. most of them had come up, of course, through, they'd worked on Doctor Who, they cut their teeth as production assistants, and they'd come to fruition, they'd come, they'd come into their prime as, so you, you've got David Malone, you've got Michael Bryant, you've got, you know, early ones, Tim, Timothy, you've got Douglas Camfield, and it's in the Pertwee era and the Hinchcliffe years, that, that group of directors, and it's quite a tight group, um, are delivering astonishing work, you know. Yeah. What, I, what the... I noticed about this, 
when we look back at the Troughton era, and you, you look at a story like The Invasion as a kind of blueprint for what would be done in the Pertwee era, yeah. in some respects, me watching this now, what I what I see in its various constitu constituent parts, it's its atmosphere, the production values, the way the way it makes me feel, the Doctor's mm. relationship to its companion, and that Hammer esque quality. I hadn't noticed before how much this story in particular points the way to the future of the show, how it would evolve over the next two to three to four years, with all, all those big changes. This is the only, it's my only serious rival now to the Time Warrior as the, as the best of season 11. And it represents a major rediscovery for me. I'm going to give this four roots out of five. I agree with you, Stephen. I reserve the right to raise that score too at a later date because I, I do that all the time as well. <laughs> so interestingly, what would you have given? What would you think you would have given it, Dan, if you hadn't watched it? I have not watched it recently for this. I'd have given it a two at a push. It's to my shame that I haven't watched it in so long. Now I feel like I've <laughs> wasted my time watching other stories over and over again. The ratings, the lowest rating for episode one was 8.1 million, but the highest was episode three, and that was 10.5 million. So wow. That's a big number. Is that the highest like that. rating for, for season 11? Because it wasn't getting tens a lot, was it, until Tom? We've talked about Barry Letts and how and, and how he uh, really cemented the Pertwee years, whether you like them or not. And it was during the, uh, just as Death of the Daleks was completing production, that he announced to the cast and crew that, that he was stepping down. So, interestingly, this story marks the beginning of the end. Time Warriors is the strongest story of, of this. Yeah, story. I think are you, so. are you, are you, is that, Would that be yeah. your place as well, Dan? Yeah. 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 I haven't, um, there are some of the other stories I think I've only ever seen Invasion of the Dinosaurs twice. I'm, I'm going really? to have to go back to that one as well. It's I've, a cracker. Yeah, I've given that. I, it didn't make any impression on me either of the wow. time. And I've just had no real reason to go back to it since I've, because I've done the two watch throughs all the way through. So the VHS tape that I had all those years ago, that came out in 1987. And they cut it up in an omnibus form. So there was stuff, stuff missing. And they thought we wanted classic Doctor Who in movie form. It did come out unedited in 1995 on VHS on DVD in 2012 still available now as well there we're waiting on the blu-ray strangely though there were edits there were bits missing in the re-release vhs which had the cliffhangers because they used the australian tape oh i see so they got censorship cuts yeah and there was a line of of persian pertry says she says who are you fooling and he says Myself chiefly. Myself chiefly wasn't in it. I remember because I knew it so well from the first release. And suddenly there's this line missing. It's still available on, on disc if you'd rather wait for the Blu-ray. I can see why people do. And of course it's streaming on ITVX at the moment in Britain. I think that you can get it, still get it on Britbox elsewhere in the in the world. Doctor Who is actually classic Doctor Who. It's in more places than ever now. Pluto TV also shows all the classic stuff too. So yeah, it's it's out there. The, the third Doctor would, would return to the series eventually uh, in 1983 as part of the five Doctors. But John Pertwee himself is someone that I've always had unending affection for, respect for, and enjoyed in practically everything I've ever seen him in. People roll their eyes sometimes when I say, oh, the Pertwee era is my, my least favourite, as if it's the most ridiculous thing anybody can ever say. <laughs> but in my defence, I've, I've got there with it slowly. And that journey, I think, was particular to me and one that I have had to make 
and I've, I've held the course and been very rewarded by it. I mean, this series has been going on for 60 years. It's gone through so many different eras and tonal sort of variations. You can meet a fan who is a fan of the same programme, and they might as well be a fan of a completely different programme, but yes. there's something about the thing, an essential, quintessential sort of ethos of the thing, binds us all together. Uh-huh. And, and it's always a mistake, I think, if somebody hates your favourite story, you can take it quite personally. I'm trying to get mature, maturer than that these days. I suppose there are certain moments in one's experience as a fan when, when one was deeply offended by what the show did. Warriors <laughs> of the Deep was, was the moment for me that was unforgivable, one of the worst days of my life. Isn't they, that funny? Because I love Warriors of the Deep. I well, absolutely... But you see, this is now. I'm now big enough to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Every one of these classic incarnations now has this this life of their own, which has uh, has carried on after the lifespan of the actor who originally brought him to life. And uh, it's the same with the the third Doctor, created, embodied by John Pert, who clearly brought so much of himself that he'd been holding back after all those years in, in playing, in, in being under the green umbrella that he always talks about in interviews. And it, the legacy now continues, doesn't it, with Tim Trelaw voicing the Third Doctor for big finished productions. There's several, I think he's been doing it for the best part of 10 years. So he's deep into that, box set after box set, yeah. release after release. And I'm sure that John Pert, we would be, would be proud of that, to think that part of, part of him is something that he created from within himself I don't know if it was against the odds, but I think that Pertwee couldn't quite believe it himself that it has happened, that it's in, endured in the way that it has. He redefined the character of the Doctor and left the series in a far better place than when he'd arrived. I think that's <laughs> I think that's a fair point to say. I, Nothing I against Trout. That's, 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 that's yeah, undeniable. I'd have thought yes, and yeah. it isn't anything against Trout, but it was you know it was it looked like it was absolutely on its last legs, didn't it? Yeah. Um, in By the time Pertwee was departing, it, it was back to being an unmovable fixture, mm. I suppose, mm. just like the football results of Saturday mm. evening television. And, and I, I think it would have probably been unthinkable for anybody at the BBC to even consider giving it a long rest or replacing it with something else. Trying to do, you know, there was no question of it continuing. The thing is, bringing Patrick Troughton in, replacing the first Doctor was an experiment that might or might not have worked. But by the time we get to John Pertwee, it's it's established it's become a success it is solid the regen the idea of regeneration and, and switching to a new actor is established and accepted and expected and so i think all of those formative six years under hartnell and Troughton just all come coalesce and come together under the, in, in the pertwee years and that's not just because of pertwee it is because of barry letts and terence dix as well and they consolidate the work that was done in the first six years and they basically established doctor who as a brand that is not going to be going anywhere for many many years to come um, i suppose the the biggest question simon was how on earth could you possibly follow that but that's definitely a story for another time John Pertwee remained closely associated with the role of the Doctor for the rest of his life. And he was still a presence on British television, variety shows and chat shows, and, and the Ultimate Adventure Stay show, and all these things. John Pertwee was the consummate entertainer, wasn't he? He was never not being John Pertwee. He loved, he loved mugging for the camera. He, I think he relished the fact when he realized that people had grown up watching him, I think he knew that there was a there was a, a weight to that, and if not a burden, then probably a responsibility 
And I never met him myself. I, I wish that I had. Uh, particularly now, now that I see his doctor in a completely different light. Mm. But in my view, characters like John Pertwee and, and a lot of the people who, who were on those sort of radio shows. But Leslie Phillips died only about a year ago. People of that generation think, yeah, I think Leslie was probably the last one. And it's, yeah, it's, it's sort of sad that they're not still around, that versatility and that playfulness. John Pertwee, he was a very masculine man, wasn't he? Very famously masculine. And yet, catch him in a moment and he looked like he was a, a naughty schoolboy who was waiting to be found out i think you just see that every now and again with pertwee himself testimony to how fine an actor john pertwee as fi how fine a straight actor mm. he could be i wonder how how he must have felt uh, you know in the in the four years before he got wurzel gummidge or got off the ground it must yeah. have been so difficult for somebody like him to see the the next doctor being even more successful than he yeah sure i think it, it was it is, yeah it is undeniable that there's nobody's ever been as successful as tom baker as absolutely the with the possible exception of, of david tennant in the revised series that must have been difficult for, for yeah. somebody like for somebody like Perth, we i would to... imagine that wurzel gummidge which he didn't have to share with anybody no McKenzie well he always he said he said you know when he when asked which do you prefer he said well i prefer wurzel because it was my own thing yes. there's only one well, there was. Now they've, they've remade it, but but it's it was my creation. I didn't create Doctor Who because he didn't write the books. Of yeah. Image, but but it was it was entirely his own at that time. Characterization, whereas yeah. he shared Doctor Who with <laughs> with other people, probably teeth grindingly with with Tom Baker in in the aftermath of. of well, uh... <laughs> well, especially seeing as he hadn't even really wanted to leave the whole book. No. Stay on in Doctor Who. I know. <sighs> The yeah. things we the things we do. We're going to continue talking through reviews of classic and new Doctor Who. It's all all one series to us here at Type Forty. We're going to make our way through it, not necessarily in in the right order, but in a kind of order. All those incarnations here on Type Forty in our Diamond season of reviews. We're going to get together and chat <laughs> with people that we've known for a while, or sometimes people that we don't. People who are going to come on new and mixes of people and voices and opinions. But that's that's the old girl starting up and calling time on yet another edition of Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast. I'll be back with another one soon. Of course I will. Look out for that wherever you found this. It could have been at the dedicated home feed for Type 40 at type40.podbean.com. Maybe it rolled up on the podcatcher of your choice. So I'm talking about Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Google Play, Pub, all those places. Plus, we're still on the fabulous Fandom Podcasts master feed, loaded up with all those treats for your ears. Never mind on the weekly. They've got it coming at you on the daily there at the Fandom Podcast Network. So please consider a trip sideways in time for more quality shows from the FPN. You can reach out to us through our social medias, Instagram or Twitter, at Type40DoctorWho. Email us at Type40DoctorWho at gmail.com. And if you're feeling particularly brave, depends on how the mood may take you, you can find us on Facebook, the Type 40 Facebook group. That's where regenerations worth, upon regenerations worth of Doctor Who fans from, uh, from the classic era, from the new era, and people who are looking forward to all new Doctor Who, we're all congregating there and celebrating and speculating all for the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who getting stuck in. So come and find us there on Facebook and join in with your takes. Stephen, it's been brilliant to have you on the show. You're a mine of information, as I suspected 
I suspected you may be. We went all over the map, but if people want to hear you as the first Doctor, there's a couple of box sets out already, aren't there? And you are part of their 60th anniversary range, aren't you? I know you can't talk about releases that could be to come, but these are the ones that are already out. So there's the, the Outlaws and the Demon Song there, and Once and Future past lives we'll have to talk to you more about that and about audio drama and all sorts of other things but most of all i think i'd just love to hang out with you a bit more and talk about some more classic doctor who stories i hope you're down i'd for love that. to do that i'd love to do that it's been a joy today the to, to, correct answer simon it's a, a, an authentic a sincere and a, and a truthful answer and no, it really is it's well a, you know, you're welcome back anytime it's a, as as always it is a joy to speak classic doctor who with yeah. classic fans simon while i remember Give us your social media links as well. People can find you hanging out on Facebook, can't they? Yeah, they can see me on Facebook under Doctor Who, The Hoonatics, W-H-O-N-A-T-I-C-S. Uh, Come and say hello there and join in the fun. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter as the Spacebook, wheezing and groaning, ranting and raving about all things geeky inside and outside of the TARDIS. Come and find me on social media and let me know what you think of all this. If you're watching on YouTube, drop us a comment. Give us your review of our review. We're all ears. And you can speculate too about what's to come on the next of these Diamond Anniversary reviews of classic and new Doctor Who. All in the mix. Not quite sure where we're going. Well, I've got a fair idea where we're going yet. Stephen Noonan, Simon Horton, thank you for your company on this one. And thanks to you for listening. We always have the time. If you have the space here at Type 40, bye-bye.